Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hello, Ward. What's going on, Eric? You know, Ward, a lot's going on. A lot's <laughs> going on. Um, we've got a huge game tonight. No, we don't. Wow. I mean... Honestly, it doesn't. I mean, if we win tonight and then win against Purdue. And then win a game or two in the Big Ten tourney, then maybe we sneak into the NCAA tournament before we lose there. No, that's all so far off a remote possibility of actually occurring. I put nothing in any game for the rest of the season. Wow. I'm the more optimistic one right now. I have to feel most people feel like I do if they're even still watching. If they're even still paying attention, they feel more like me than there's like, I would say 5% of the Indiana fan base is like, big game today. I know. It's just my my life calendar is so set by Indiana games. And I'm going to be sad to not be able to watch Indiana, even in the misery. So there's only a few left. I'm going to get excited by Michigan State and go in there and wax and Tom Izzo. And I will be right there with you, but I will have no hope for the future attached to any game. If we actually go and play our twice a year good game that's enjoyable to watch, it'll be a pleasant surprise. If not, it'll be along with like laundry, um, uh, making dinner, uh, <laughs> helping kids with homework. It's pooping. yeah gotta do it gotta do it you just gotta do it it's just one of the things that has to get done in the day well look uh yeah i mean i think we covered it pretty well on reasonable rabbi last week you know kind of where we both are the game against michigan happened in between rabbi and it went exactly how it should go on paper right yep it just that is rare that is rare for a game to go just exactly how you think it will go. That's why you know a bunch of Indiana fans lost money because they're like, look, we're probably going to end up winning this one or at least beating the spread. Nope. Nope. The saddest thing is that coming into Assembly Hall just means nothing. Turns out the fans are real important. And even with fans, we've lost too many games at Assembly Hall in this era. Did you watch the big trip? I did. Yes. And and that whole thing that the disaster that was that season before they went on the trip was they lost four home games. Right. 
Bob Hamill was like, they wouldn't do that in a decade. It was like, oh, well, we've got of making that a regular occurrence around here. No kidding. I mean, we lost in a shortened season this year where we did not play a marquee non-conference game at home. We've lost six home games. You know what's more fun to talk about? What's is that? the big trip. And I saw this because it, it, it was on the itinerary that Tim Garl had, had printed out they had a shot of. And I got all excited and I started like already like looking on the internet for other people who had noticed this. But then towards the end of the show, they actually talked about it, that Everett Dean went on the trip and was one of the coaches. You know, know. Henry and Iba and all that stuff was great, but that was Everett Dean. And he was a part of that. That was so cool. I know. And it, it flies in the face a little bit of some of what we heard maybe because it was more recent, but like, the, remember we heard that coach did not really love the Branch McCracken years. Like he did not pay those homage. However, we also know that he really did pay homage to Lou Watson. Yes. And treated him extremely well. And Lou Watson remained part of Indiana University basketball till like 1987. And everything we've heard is Branch McCracken was a great guy. So I think we might need to, Get a couple more sources on that. You know, and I don't know if it was maybe Pat Knight. Pat Knight would be a good one. We should ask Pat and we should ask maybe like Dr. Rink. Uh, I was going to say Bob Hamill would certainly have a strong. Oh, that's a good call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we still got to get Bob Hamill on the show. He would be, he would, we would need like six hours minimum. I uh, know. We got to get Bob Hamill on the show. All right, listen, I thought it was awesome. The best part, of course, is that close up of you and me, (laughs) like three minutes into the show. I didn't watch it right away. We were taping Reasonable Rabbi. Right. And then you text me that you're getting people sending you screen grabs and then people are texting me. I'm like, and they, and then I'm getting messages from people like, how'd you get them to put you in? (laughs) I didn't. We didn't get anybody. You think we have that kind of stroke? We got no stroke. Like they just put it in. They just look like, hey, we need, I, I, look, I'm a bit of a producer, right? So sure. I can tell you what that was. There's a producer in the edit bay going, all right, we've got this great shot of Coach Knight. You know what we need? We need a picture. We need a good shot of two guys who just look ridiculously emotional. We just need two guys who are over emoting because we just got to nail it real quick at the top of the show, how important this was. So can you go find two idiots who are like basically crying and you with the big giddy smile and me looking like, I mean, I don't, I look like like you're checking the scoreboard. Like is the game coming back on? (laughs) I was looking up going, are we really losing to Purdue? You know what my producer mind thought, and I'm not really a producer, so it's probably not accurate, was, and this is right, we were, you know, we're, we're about as young as it gets in that crowd who really remembers what Bobby Knight did. Right, that's fair. That's fair. Like, we were kids when that stuff, that he formed our love of Indiana. Yes, um, and and because they saw, there was a shot it was kind of crazy she reminded me of my aunt mary who very much was a part of our um home growing up grandmother aunt mary my dad me watching these games and she has passed but they did cut to a woman in the crowd that that reminded me of her who was who was crying you know a lady around bobby's age part of that generation and then of course all his players 
are generally 10, 20 years older than us. So we were, we were the youngsters they needed to squeeze in there. Also, here's the true reality. They had like probably five or six cameras. All of them were on coach night and the legends that were on the court. One camera was on the crowd. <laughs> they just didn't have that much footage and they needed to cut away. So that's how we got into the big trip. Very cool. I loved it. Joe Wait. Hillman, great stories. Joe, Joe Hillman. It was good to see him on there. The terrorist. <laughs> Joe Hillman, the <laughs> Lebanese terrorist. Joe Hillman of all people to like pull aside. I will say, um, hold on. First, you know, I've been having trouble with my camera. It's too dark. My computer's old. Now it makes me look like I'm a Oompa Loompa. So watch this. It's like a white balance thing. It might, it might, it might go back to orange yeah, in a second. Got whiter. Yeah, well, I was orange before, so at least this is closer to my natural color. You just got much more Indiana. Yeah, that's what we're doing here. Before but you were Tom Crean. It's a Tom Crean filter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Daryl Thomas. Seeing oh. Daryl Thomas's smile was the, the Everett Dean thing, and then just. I was noticing it before they did the whole Daryl Thomas thing. I was like, man, that guy's, his smile doesn't light up a room. His smile lights up the Great Wall of China. Yeah. And then to see him talk when the reunion happened to, you know, Vic and that whole team, it, that was a great moment, um, moments they shared with us of a gentleman, obviously we didn't get to speak with before he passed way too soon. So it was really sweet and meaningful to see him in that show. I, I agree. And wasn't there a quick moment too of, there was a quick moment of Daryl Thomas and Keith Smart in the locker room, in the Indiana locker room, pre-renovated locker room, like clearly yeah. still during the night years, but uh, at, well after they were done playing. And Daryl is talking and Keith is right next to him laughing. Like Keith is just giddy with laughter. And I'm like, these two guys are part of the single biggest play in Indiana University history. And here they were years later, back in the locker room, not players anymore, but just enjoying being around each other, like so happy. Yeah. And it just filled me with, with joy to see that. Um, and they gave Daryl's pass its proper due on yes. that show because those of us who are very wonky and have gotten into that team and that play th that's better known now but for a broad audience to hear that that was the single play of Knight's entire career he felt defined what he wanted his players to do was just it, it was a great epilogue no for panic. a wonderful player there was no panic in that last moment, there was no panic. And you know what? Coach Knight deserves a lot of credit for that, for that moment being remembered because anytime, if you go on YouTube and search Coach Knight, smart shot, he'll talk about how great the shot was, but he will immediately talk about it's the greatest assist he's ever seen. Yeah. You know, that, that most people, we see it all the time. You see it, Ward, you see it at the end of halves where you're just trying to go from like a six point game to a four point game where the ball gets into somebody with like eight seconds of, and they just freaking panic, right? They just panic. And you see Daryl actually check the clock. Right. He looks down at the other end to see what it is and kicks it to Keith. Yeah, I know. So it was, smart. 
I loved the whole thing. I love the Hillman stories. I love the I love that they rode the bus with the team that they were playing. <laughs> and then they got in a fight with them. And I love I felt ripped off. We didn't see any of the brawl footage. I know. And like, where was the cinematographer during that? Maybe, maybe Zapruder film. Yeah, I bet it's out there somewhere. It's out there. Uh, Winston Morgan, right? Wasn't he the one who just said, I just I just laid the guy out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, we really got to interview lots of people in that. We got to get Steve Isle. We got to get Todd Meyer. We got to get Joby. Steve, Joby for sure. Look, we've been working on Joby for a while. He's a tough guy to pin down. Yeah. We got to get, we got to get Stu Robinson. He was great. Yeah. Um, Delray was great in that. Delray was great. I thought that that was a really cool thing to have him part of that. And then the whole parallel of him going to Providence and being in the same final four, that was really cool. Uh, the whole thing was great. Well done by everybody who did it. And if you haven't seen it, check it out on big 10 network. I want to rant about something. Sure. Sure. I've been waiting, deciding on when to rant about this and how I should rant about this. And I am worried that you will not agree with me on this. I kind of hope I don't, just for the entertainment value of our listeners. On this one, I hope you do agree with me. Okay. So this has something to do with running for trustee. Okay. Because I do get messages from people. They're like, we really want to know where you stand on some real things. Okay. This is not a decision necessarily of the trustees, but I do think this is a decision that the trustees could have, could have had influence in and didn't. As we know, the most depressing story of this entire basketball season is that the entire NCAA tournament is being played in our state and games are being played at Assembly Hall, right? Of all the years, well, I guess I shouldn't say of all the years. It could have happened any one of the last five, (laughs) but it's happening. The NCAA worked with state and local officials. And let me be perfectly honest. I do not follow Indiana state politics. So I know Holcomb is the governor. I know little to nothing about him, okay? Mm -hmm. Readily admitting that. I do not follow that. Uh, This is not a partisan thing. I don't even know who's who there. I mean, I just assume everybody's a Republican, but I I I don't have any real sense of what these guys stand for. Except for Pat Shoulders. There you go, right. (laughs) So the NCAA is an organization that is concerned with two things above everything else. One, money, and two, litigation and liability, which would cost them money, right? Right. Mm-hmm. They worked for a long time. And there's this guy, Dan Gavitt at the NCAA, who everyone who talks about raves about, like he is the real deal, He's- really well respected. He is the Gavit games, the Gavit and Gavit games, right? Yes, yeah, I'd never seen that put together, but I assumed it was the case. Yeah, because he was a Big East guy. Got it. I think he was the commissioner of the Big East. I believe that's correct. They worked with state and local officials to figure out a way to make the tournament happen and to figure out a way to get fans into the arenas in some way. Mm-hmm. And what they came out with was, we can do it safely, at 25% capacity, okay? Now, what they said was, we're gonna leave it up to the local gyms to figure out if they wanna go under that. But we're gonna leave it up to, but we think you can be safe at 25%. Again, an organization that is so scared to death of liability and litigation. The Bloomington mayor 
who this decision does rest on more than anybody else, but with consultation from Indiana University, decided that the games at Assembly Hall will have 500 fans in them. 500 fans comes out to, I, I don't know what percentage that is. Like, uh, it's less than 5%. Yeah, less than five. <laughs> okay. This really pisses me off because you're already disagreeing. I just don't know why you care. Because here's why. That community, Bloomington, and all those communities, but I'm worried about Bloomington right now. Mm-hmm. They have been ravaged. I've had conversations with Ed Schwartzman. I've had conversations with people that run local businesses in Indiana. They have been ravaged. Hotels, bars, restaurants, their livelihoods have been put on hold. And in some cases, ruined. Some of these places will not open. You know, some restaurants in Bloomington have closed during the COVID and will not reopen. We are at a time where we have more science backing it. We have lots of people involved. We've had events across the country, NBA arenas, football stadiums, one of which I attended in Florida. Yep, didn't get COVID. Didn't get COVID. And the truth is we have not heard stories over the last several months about any of these arenas that have allowed a limited number of people in. We have not heard about spikes in in, um, COVID cases in those municipalities. The Bloomington mayor, and I believe the trustees of Indiana who could have put pressure, could have said, you know what? Is it a risk to allow more than 500 people? Yes, of course it is. It will always be a risk until it's totally gone, you know, or, or mostly gone. The Bloomington infection rate is 0.7% right now. Monroe County is 0.7%. It is less than the rest of the state, which is at 3.8%. It's 0.7. I believe that the mayor of Indiana could have give, delivered a rule. Bloomington. What did I say? Mayor of Indiana. Mayor of Bloomington could have delivered a figurative shot in the arm to businesses who have been just laid out for the last year and say, we're going to let, I mean, not 500, let let 15% in if you want to do it. We're going to bring thousands of people to go buy food, to stay in some hotels, and because there's nothing else we've been able to do for you for the last year. Vaccinations are going up. It's easing. This this tournament is in several weeks. Every day it gets better. Mm -hmm. Cases are continually going down. And the rest of the state is doing it. And I feel like it is a huge missed opportunity to try to do something nice for, and something that would have been good for the Bloomington community. And it bothers me. I can agree with you on that. This is why you're running for trustee and I'm not. I only looked at that in the vacuum of, well, who cares? Even if we made the tournament, we couldn't play in assembly hall. Right. Like that's against the rules. You can't play on your own home court. Right. We ain't gonna make the tournament. So who cares? But you, you're looking at the bigger picture. You got the macro community as a whole in your sights. And that's the kind of vision we need from a trustee. We don't need a fanboy like me who's only like, who cares? We're not going to be playing there anyway. I don't care. Don't let anybody in. I don't give a shit. <laughs> but Ward, you and I have met some of these people. You've met Ed Schwartzman. Yes. Buffaloes. You know, yes. we frequented these restaurants. We know the bartenders at Nick's. We've hung out with them. We've Bloomer, we've been baby. part of it. We, 
they need help. They need extreme help. And this wasn't going to solve anything for them, but we're, the trickle effect of how these businesses being closed has affected an entire community and the entire country is brutal. It's debilitating. And this is not an unnecessary risk. This is not a silly risk. Again, it is a risk that was deemed well within means by the NCAA and local and state Indiana officials. Yeah, like, This is not craziness. These are not crazy people that were involved. These are people that are terrified of being sued. And I just think, again, Indiana University doesn't get to make the decision, okay? It is the mayor. But Indiana University has a special place of authority in Monroe County. And had the trustees or Indiana University stepped up and said, we want this to happen and say it publicly, we want to help all those people that have supported us for years, that buy tickets, that buy programs, that pay for parking, we're going to give something back to them this one week in the year, a year after the, 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 the virus has really taken hold. They could have done it and they didn't, and they've been silent about it, and it pisses me off. And if I was a trustee, I would use whatever platform you have there to say, no, 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 Indiana University is bigger than just going to class. It's the community. We're part of the community. The community supports us. We're going to support them this one week. That's what we're going to do. That's my rant for today. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you completely. I see where you're coming from. Came into it objectively. Had not formed an opinion besides, I don't care. It's not us. And it's, I, I in my mind, there is no delineation between the campus and the town. And the sample gates are the perfect example of that. It's, it's a seamless transition from the campus onto Kirkwood. And when we go back, it's as much as about going around campus, looking at the old buildings, going to assembly hall, as it is going to Kirkwood, going Walnut College, and and you know going to Little Zagreb's. That's all a part of the experience for everybody, including students who are there now. And it will be sad to go back and see some of those places no longer open, even even though the pandemic will have passed at that point. So. You know, I don't know if there's anything that can be done about it at this late a date, but if you're listening to the show and you agree with Eric, call somebody, write yeah, a letter. Call the mayor's office. Yeah. Send them a, send, I just, 0.7% is the infection rate. 0.7. It is like five times better than the rest of the state. It is so low. It is so low. And there have been... Here, well, I mean, I think the, the argument would be People are coming from elsewhere to yeah, go. No, to that, that that is true. But the science is behind this one. Like the almost everywhere across the country now, with the exception of a few places that are real hotspots, like LA, which is a true hotspot, and still can, even though the numbers are way down, it's still a problem. But Indiana is not a hotspot, and the rest of the country has allowed it. Like so many, you're, you're seeing fans in stadiums now, and I just, I just think that. It is a, you have to measure risk versus reward, right? In yeah. my estimation, looking at the science and reading as much as I could about this, the risk is so low and the reward is so high for so many people that have been ravaged for a year. Giving somebody a, a busy weekend could make them for three, four months, man. Sure. It, it could no. make the difference between closing and not. I've, I've had a buddy... Um, he was very smart after we left college 
and he got the franchise rights to Kilroy's. So he owns the two Kilroy's in Indianapolis and talking with him six months ago, absolutely brutal, absolutely brutal. And knowing that that tournament's going to be in Indianapolis coming up and that he's been doing everything he can to stay open. And I haven't checked with him in, you know, the last couple of months, but that, that is the lifeblood of his business year round is sporting events. And so he's been feeling it. And I know the fact that this is all going to be focused largely in and around Indianapolis with the the other campuses coming involved is, is going to be a huge boon to what he's doing. So when you're talking about a town like Bloomington, where there's actually a lot smaller customer base than even in a big city like Indianapolis, the impact of people coming in is that much greater. Totally. All right. Well, that's my rant for today. I reserved the rant for that and not another state of Indiana rant because it's just too depressing. It, Here's it's where it's at. Here's where it's at. We were talking about how the, the Archie apologists have gone largely silent, I believe, the last time we spoke. Now, the Archie apologists are stepping forward and saying, I supported Archie for a long time, but now even I can no longer support this regime. Like, th- that is part of the conversation out there, not just on Pigs, but on Reddit, on Twitter, wherever else you go. It's Everybody saying like, man, I defended this guy up until two weeks ago, but I'm out. And what comes with that are stories of I'm not watching games live anymore. I'll only watch the games if we win. My friends and family who, you know, they'll watch it with me or I can discuss it with them, but they're already gone. They're no longer paying. I I hate reading that. I hate it. I really do. I'm like, I get it. I mean, I do like a fan is allowed to react however they want to react. Like I've never been in this, like when people lecture fans about you need to do no, no, no. Or like, don't boo. Like, what do you mean? Don't boo. (laughs) What are you talking about? Like they paid their money. They're paying for entertainment. If they feel like their entertainment dollars weren't well spent or were stolen from them. Boo. I, I mean, I like, I just don't care about that stuff, but when I, it makes me sad when I read, and you've told me a lot of your friends, like they're just not watching anymore. And there is just nothing worse than apathy, nothing. And because this is commonplace now, I did have somebody ask me the other day, are you going to, are you going to watch the Indiana game tonight? And I said, well, I, I get it that some people aren't anymore, but now it's literally my job. I have to. (laughs) But I would anyway. I would anyway because... Oh, you just went cream. You just went full cream. Boom. Back to Indiana. White balance, baby. So uh, as somebody who, while I I grew up knowing Indiana as the best... best We'll come again. As the best college basketball team in the country... I also started with the Indianapolis Colts when they were arguably the worst football team in the NFL. And I know how sweet it is when you get on top after being all the way down. If you're there at three and 13, when Clarence for Dan gets a a kickoff return for a touchdown and you're like, yeah, baby, here we go. It took another 20 years to win a Super Bowl, but damn, it felt good. So I'm here for every game, every preseason. I'll go on btn plus wherever i have to go to see every single game because when we finally hoist number six 
it'll feel that much sweeter. And I do believe we'll get there. And I think, you know, you and I, you and I feel like it's entirely possible if circumstances change, but we're going to address that on reasonable rabbi. Maybe Probably. we can't tell him what the topic's going to be. I mean, no, no, I tried to keep it as vague as possible. And depending on what happens with the game, we could throw it out the window and go with something else. But we've got a really, 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 really fun guest we're about to talk to. Listen, we've been at war. We've been at war. We circled the wagons. We battened down the hatches. Shots were fired. Shots were fired. Literally, maybe, literally. You know what? Why don't you tell the story? So we have a beef with our guest. You know, he gives us the the ghost. He brushes it. What? Did he give us the hi-hat? He gave us the hi-hat. <laughs> I'm okay. I'll edit a clip in just because you prompted me. Yeah. And I'm sick of the hi-hat. And we said some things. On our show. We need to tell people if you didn't listen last week, he was supposed to come on our show and then he bailed. He just he bailed. bailed. He ghosted us. He ghosted us. Yeah. We called him out for it publicly. And next thing I know, I'm driving along to drop off something at the FedEx Dropbox. Doom, 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 doom. The hell is that? I pull over. My tire is flat, like all the way flat. Fortunately, it was right next to a gas station with a repair shop. So I go, 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 go go over there and I say, Hey man, I was actually just going to go get my oil change, but now I got a flat tire. Can you help me out? He's like, sure. I'll patch you up. And, and I'm still in the car and he's just going to like, look at it right there. And he goes, Oh, I, I can't fix this for you, man. You need to come out here. You're not going to believe what did this. Intrigued. I hop out of the car. I run around as he's pulling out a bullet a freaking a, bullet. A bullet. There's some debate. Was it a 32? Was it a nine? Couldn't quite tell. It's it had been picture of bullet here. Picture of bullet there. And who else? I don't have any enemies except one person. One. Today's one. guest. I mean, look, before today, before the war, he was an all-time favorite guest. Then the war came. Winter is coming and dead to us. Dead to us. But we love Indiana. And our love for Indiana was stronger than our hatred for our guest. And so <laughs> we allowed him to come back on our show. Redeem himself. To try to redeem himself. And look, there's only one real way that he would be able to redeem himself. If he were able to harness a certain power if he was able to, to just grab hold of a certain spirit that usually is reserved for you and I. True, that's true. Because we are. Powered by. What was that? Powered by. Purge. <laughs> there we go. I didn't mean to, but I changed up the powered by. Maybe I'll start fucking around with it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's no rules here. <laughs> White balance. <laughs> so let's get to it. We got a lot to discuss with this guy. How you doing, buddy? Well, we almost lost the greatest golfer of, of his generation to an accident. We don't want to lose the greatest hooper of his generation in the same <laughs> week. <laughs> Is Calvert Cheney driving? 
right now? Oh. <laughs> All right, good. let's let's do this. Let's do this. Oh, I thought we already started. We kind of did. We're sitting here with somebody we've had on before, but he's not just anybody. He's definitely one of our favorite 40 or 50 guests of all time. And as a result, he needs to be introduced a little bit again to give him his just due. And that's Eric's job. So I'm going to turn it over to him. Well, the war with this gentleman has finally come home. That's what it is. It's been a raging war for about seven days. And here we are. Uh, ready to take this war to a new a new level. But before he's, we he's, do... He's currently speaking with somebody outside of his car, and we may have lost the signal. It's true. He's totally frozen. Oh, oh. he's back. Ladies hey. and gentlemen, let, wait, wait, just let us intro you first before you start yeah. yakking. I think he was in a drive through We are speaking to one of only 12 Hoosiers who have won Big Ten Player of the Year. We are talking to an IU Hall of Famer. We are talking to somebody who is 12th all time in points. We are talking to somebody who has won a Big Ten championship. We're talking to somebody who got drafted into the NBA. We're we are talking, talking to somebody driving away from McDonald's right now. That's true. We will get into what the order was in a minute. Bottom line, as much as we are at war with him, we are talking to one of the greatest and one of the biggest fan favorites that has ever played at Indiana University. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to the one and only, the incomparable, the insufferable, Brian Evans. What does uh, insufferable mean? Hard to take. Hard to take. You're suffering. I get it. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so how are you, sir? I'm good. I got a Diet Coke. Uh, I'm a little tired today. That's it? I did my... You got a Diet Coke from McDonald's? That's the order? I like their Diet Cokes. Yeah, I have a. Uh, I did yoga this morning at 6 o'clock. Um, it was my third all-time yoga class, and um, I'm tired. All right, well, before, before we get into everything we want to talk about, let's talk about this. We are at war with you because mm -hmm. one week ago, you were supposed to come on to our podcast. You laid out the, the parameters by which you would appear. You laid out the time. We agreed to it. Ward and I were waiting patiently. Five minutes passed, 10 minutes passed. Text you, nothing back. We were, getting, passed, we were getting worried. We were getting worried. 30 minutes passed, nothing. So we had to go to a backup. And by the way, one hell of a backup in Jared Jeffries who came on. But then you and I did talk later. I'm going to let Ward hear for the first time why exactly you were not on our call. And we'll let Ward and the fans decide if it's a legitimate reason. And that's assuming that there are fans out there listening. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not convinced necessarily. Fair. But, you know, Jared and I never played together, but I think it's probably fair to call him my backup. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So where were you? He might last be listening. Year? He knows I'm kidding. He might be listening. He's your only fan. <laughs> <laughs> so where were you? Um, well, I was in my, let's see. That was my first yoga class of all time. <laughs> and 
That's where I was. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to make any apologies. We got our, we got our uh, signals crossed and they were my signals. So I, I take full responsibility. I gave you a time and then you and I, we, we made a joke about you submitting your questions in advance. You remember this, Eric? I do. At 5 p.m. And so the last thing I looked at, I didn't put it in my uh, calendar. Last thing I looked at was five. And so I thought, oh, cool, I'll get done with yoga and um, I'll call these guys. And so I screwed it up. That's my fault. But it wasn't, it wasn't normal yoga. What kind of yoga was it? This was hot yoga. Yeah. Hot yoga. This is where they just turn up the temperature in the room. Now, what I learned is, I needed to start with just regular temperature yoga. <laughs> Hot yoga was too much for me. It was too much. So, so, so today, your second and third yoga sessions, regular temperature yoga? Uh, today, is it was regular temperature. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was plenty hard. Plenty hard. Yeah. Now, I mean, are you naturally a flexible guy as an athlete? Or, you know, where you really tight, the hamstrings? How, how do you feel you're adapting to this new activity? Well, I think I could speak for anyone that ever saw me play 25 years ago when I could play. I wasn't flexible then. <laughs> so, no, I'm not flexible now. Uh, so, so what, they have, you, have you done bird pose? Have you done some of the bird, the crow? No, I don't even know what that is. Nobody's, there's no, I haven't learned the language at all. I, I just look at other people and I see what they're doing. And I try to do it. And they're talking uh, through a shield, right? So they got a shield on and they've got like a really bad, um, like microphone going. I can't understand them. And I think because I'm so tired and my temperature is so high that I can't hear right. I can't, I can't understand anything they're saying. So I just try to do what the other people are doing. Now, I'm not joking. I, I really, I really can't understand them. Now, well, sometimes they speak with all like the yogi language that, you know, I've done yoga for 10 years and I still don't know what the names are, what they mean, but then they'll be like, okay, this is down dog or this is like pigeon. Those are the ones I can remember. No, I haven't heard any of that kind of stuff. All right. <laughs> And one and one of the days I did it was a high it was the class was called HIT high intensity training. That was two days ago. I almost died in there. I I, I was like, oh, this is gonna look bad. I'm gonna die in this my second yoga class of all time. <laughs> it was so hard, and I was just on a mat. I mean, I never left this like three square feet of space, and I almost died. That that's how out of shape I am, guys. Now <laughs> I respect yoga. I respect it. I really do. I, I am not putting you in this category. But I have a lot of friends, I have a lot of friends who have done yoga, guys. And again, I'm not necessarily putting you in this category, but the real reason they do yoga is because when you do oh. yoga, you get yoga pants and yoga sports bras and tight fitting clothes on all the women. How much of that is factoring into why you are actually doing yoga? Thank you for asking me that question. <laughs> zero and i mean it zero i appreciate it you make me look good no i i and i don't know that we have any female listeners but uh no i it's not why i'm in there um i've done the orange theory thing i was i was heavy into that about a year ago when uh, covid shut me down i mean i was on a roll i was like seven eight months in a row of just five days a week loving orange theory and then 
COVID. Yeah. Um, it's been really hard. I have, I've had a lot of time off getting out of shape, further out of shape, feeling terrible about myself. And I thought, what is something I could do that I've never tried that I don't have to go like run five miles. And, you know, if I could run on concrete, it's hard on my back. And I wanted something lower impact on my joints and everything. And everyone says yoga. So that's why I'm there. I'm not there to, Dude, I'm so tired in there. I can't even. I told you I can't hear. I can't see either. And it, it wouldn't matter if there was somebody in front of me in, in one of those outfits you described. In there, I'm just. I'm just in there. All right. Well, you know. By the way, I have a real quick, funny Orange Theory uh, story. I got enamored with Orange Theory about 13 months ago. Did a couple classes. Was like, this is good. This is something I could do. And then, you know, you have to buy a certain number of classes. Like you can buy them one at yeah. a time or you can buy a package. And well, I'm Jewish, right? So I'm like, where do I get the best deal? Where do I get oh. the best deal? So I'm like, oh, I got to buy like 90 classes or something like that. So I'm like, you got to write a big check. I bought the 90 classes and two days later, here comes COVID. No orange theory. <laughs> and they're not giving you your money back. So I've just donated no a way. sizable amount of money to orange theory for the last 13 months. I hope they're using the money well. I did the same thing with my yoga studio. I bought a package right before things shut down. And then I noticed six months later, they charged me again for another workout. They're not giving me any of those workouts. And they said, oh I, have, I, have to use, I have to use my classes online because oh, they're man. the yoga instructors are doing it online now. And I'm like, no way, no way, no way is that fair. No, you could, oh. just, you could go to a YouTube video if you wanted to do that. I've done that. It's free. It's great. All right. Oh, no. Let's, let's get off the small talk. By the way, I do want to just rehash one thing. When you were saying where you were last week, you said, I'm not going to offer any apologies. Why? You should apologize to us. Wait a minute. When did I say I wasn't going to offer an apology? You, As you were rambling about where you were last week, you said, listen, we got our signals crossed. You did own that it was your signal who got crossed. Sure. But you said, listen, I'm not going to do any apologies. You said that. No, because I already did. Not publicly. I'm not gonna. Correct. <laughs> correct. There, where does it say it's a public apology? I apologize. You know I did. All right. All right. Let's get into just. Let's start with Indiana. What the hell is All going right. on with Indiana University basketball? Well, I was listening to your brother Dockich before you guys uh, looped me into this thing. Yeah. How's and he, he doing? spends a lot of time talking about it pretty much every day. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's got to get old. I mean. You guys don't do this every single day. That that would just get old for me. He constantly has to talk about it. And I think that's why he's so bristly and angry while he does it some of the time is he just he's forced to do it every single day. Right. Well I don't know, you guys. It's yeah. this this has not been pretty. I mean, on one hand we keep on playing teams that are trying to get in the tournament, right? So it's not like they're a bunch of slouches. Um, but we know that we don't want to lose to Rutgers, right? So yeah. we still look down. We're still shaming Rutgers for being Rutgers. And they're not a bad team, but it's the way we lose, right? So we're up. You know, I was watching that game, whatever it was. 
23 to eight, eight. I think something yeah. like that. He just, and then, and then you go into the half 33, 30, you're down. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not going through a dry spell. That is just, that's something worse than a dry spell. Well, okay. it happens all the time. Yeah. Those, the, the worse than dry spells. And I wonder why you think that's something we've been doing consistently, you know, really for the last four years, especially the last two years where it seems like we have these pieces, um, but yet six, seven minutes will go by at least every game. And, and sometimes longer than that, yeah. where we get one or zero field goals. Uh, like, is it just like a lack of confidence, mental weakness? Where, where can you point to, to say, this is why we keep not being able to score in long stretches? Can you see me better? We can't see you at all. This is the best you've looked. <laughs> uh, where'd I go? I don't know. Uh, hold on. There we go. There we there go. Uh, I was trying to adjust this thing. I was trying to adjust it for you. You were, um, you were fine before. You could put us back. I don't want you holding the phone while driving. By the way, nice haircut. That looks tight. It's fresh. It's fresh. Yeah. You know, it's still white walls. It's a little shorter than I wanted it, but my barber, she doesn't care. She she's been cutting my hair so long, she's kinda of does her own thing. I let her go. I'm not that I'm not that wrapped up in my hair, let alone beard. <laughs> I think he just slammed us both in one take. <laughs> I know. He really did. He nailed you and then came back with the one two on me with the beard. You're just yeah. jealous of the beard. And Ward's hair. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think so. I, I don't want to argue that since I'm on your show, but go ahead. Let's move on. <laughs> well, all right. So how do you respond to Ward's question of what do you point to as to why this continues to happen to Indiana for the last four years? Is it, is <sighs> it you know, what is it? I, I said last time we were all together that I actually think it's fair now to, to question – our player development, you know, what's going on in Bloomington in the summertime. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I look around and I see other people improving. I see other players coming back and, you know, uh, maybe not reinventing themselves, but, you know, adding to their, you know, to their game. I, I just don't see a lot of that, you know, and I, I, you know, I know we talked about it, but it's like Trace Jackson Davis's right hand. I don't think it's nitpicking him because I like him as a player. I mean, he's bringing, he brings a lot of energy. Um, he's got a lot of fight in him. I, you see the emotion. I mean, the, the guy's doing everything he can uh, to try to lead us. He's a sophomore and we're, you know, we want him to lead us to victory. He hadn't played that many college games. I mean, I, I he, we're getting a lot of mileage out of him. I, some of our upperclassmen, you just can't have games. I mean, we've had three in a row where, yeah, okay, Durham made some threes this last game, but the guard play and the shooting is abysmal. Yeah. And that's what everyone's talking about. So I don't have anything new to talk about. I mean, it's, it's why don't we have, why don't we have shot makers? You know what? And, and I watch these guys, what, what bothers me about some of the, you know, some of the player development, I don't see guys ready to shoot, looking to shoot, but what I don't know is what they're what, what what they're hearing in the locker room, and we don't know. I mean, it could be 
Gene Hackman five passes before we take a shot. Right. I don't know. And and that's why I hesitate to rip guys. I, I don't know what they're being told. They may be, they may be told, Hey, you know, we're not, don't even look at the rim until trace Jackson Davis gets one touch. You know, that, that wasn't coach wasn't above that. I mean, if he didn't feel like somebody that should be getting the ball was getting the ball. I mean, he, he may say something like that. Hey, we're until, you know, Calvert or until someone touches the ball, we're not looking to shoot. I don't know. I mean, he could be saying that. I, I don't right. know, but our guards certainly, we come into the front court, we are not looking at the rim. We're not looking to beat somebody off the dribble. When I watch other games of teams that I think are fun to watch play, whoever brings the ball across the court is trying to put pressure on the defense and break them down on the dribble and get somewhere. And then if defense collapses, you kick it to the corner. I it just seems like we're we come across half court looking to run this offense that you know that we we, we must like. I don't know. I want to follow up on the player development thing, because as you know, Ward and I, two uh, athletically non-gifted human beings, um, you are somebody who is the poster child for player development, how you progressed from your, you know, red shirt freshman year all the way through winning Big Ten player of the year. Clearly your game got better. How much of that is on just the individual player to make themselves better? And how much is on the coaching staff to develop the player? That's a great question. That's a great, uh, you posed it, I think, perfectly. If I had to answer that, I would say 75% on the player, 25% on the, the structure in place to help those guys with that 75%, right? So you got to be doing the majority of the work. You have to have the desire and the passion to to want to improve, to look at where you know where you need to make improvement. To be honest, an honest assessment in the mirror, which is where do I need to get better? You have to be seeking that all all the time, right? You, that never ends. You always got to be looking at how can I get better so I could get on the court and stay on the court. That's how I used to think when I was on a you know young guy on a really good team was like I don't whatever whatever I got to do to be good enough to get on the court. That's the first thing I'm going to work on. And coach, coach Knight was great at this. This is where he was so good. And this is where I don't know what goes on. So, I mean, I'm going to be slow to start ripping on what they're not. I don't know what they're doing. Right. All I know is that coach, coach really clearly defined your role and where he thought, what he thought I needed to do to get on the court. He came to me, my redshirt freshman year and said, do you want to play? I said, yeah. He goes, if I were you, I'd rebound my ass off and screen for Calvert Cheney to get him open. <laughs> and that's and that's all I did. So but, I you know, but, I became a way better rebounder because I thought that's what how I could get on the court. So then you just pursue every ball. You know, I knew I wasn't gonna uh, all of a sudden become a, a pogo stick and start jumping out of the gym, but I was like, Okay, so I gotta I gotta block people out. I gotta when other people could maybe assume that somebody else is going to get the rebound. I always took two or three steps towards the ball, if that makes sense. So like, even if I was near the three point line and a shot went up, I'd always, you know, get ahead of steam going towards the basket. Cause you don't know. And if you do that every single time, you'd be shocked at how many times the ball bounces in your direction. And then you go after. It. So if I, if that guy's going to judge me by how many rebounds I get, I'm going after him. So, and Brian, so like a, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, 
screening and rebounding are largely, I mean, I know there's technique, clearly there is technique, but there's also, it's largely effort, right? It's yeah. just putting it, how, do, how is something like that something that you work in the off season to get better at? What, what are things that you did to help yourself in those categories? Well, no, and, and those are two, th those examples would not be off season necessarily. Okay. I mean, conditioning, conditioning. Yeah. I mean, you're tired in games, right? So it's easy to just backpedal because you're at the three point line and not go after a rebound. But, you know, in my case, I, it's not like I'm a great athlete by any means. So I, for me, it was trying to get in the best shape I could be in. So I never felt winded or I never felt too tired to go after a ball. Got it. Um, but that, I mean, that, that's coach and, you know, player development. He's, he's openly communicating with me at all times on how do you, how do you get better? How can you help this team? How can Brian Evans help this ball club? And it's going to change from year to year, but that was how I got on the court, you know, and, and he, and he was right. And he go screen for Calvert. Why? Well, cause the guy guarding him is going to go with him, and the guy guarding me is going to go try to help, help guard Calvert. It left me wide open, and, you know, coach knew that's what would happen, and I ended up making a lot of open shots because both of our guy went with Calvert. Right. Um, and, and at that age, that's what I could do. I could stand alone and make shots. Um, but I, when I say 25% is the program, it's having the right staff, you know, having a motivated staff that's going to, you know, they're not sitting in their office. They're out on the practice court. So anytime these guys come in, you know, to get shots up, somebody's working with them. They're not just coming up and jacking shots and saying, Hey, I came in to shoot this afternoon. It's a coach putting them through a, a conditioning and shooting workout. Right. I don't know if they're doing all that kinds. Of, I, I would assume they're doing that kind of thing. Um, but I'm also looking around the league and I'm watching guys, you know, come back to big kid at Purdue. He got better. Yeah. He got a lot better. I mean, how much of that is on him and how it's impossible for us to say, you guys, like, is he just a worker uh, or does Matt Painter have a program in place where, you know, they're, they're forcing that guy to get better. I mean, I, we all know that the player has to want it. You know, you have to have the heart to want to get better. Uh, I just, I just have seen enough guys not improve that it's. I think it's fair now to say, well, I wonder what they're doing in Bloomington because right. guys aren't getting better. Let me throw this out because in a desperate bid to shed a little light and optimism into what's going on right now, IU men's basketball posted this yesterday on Instagram. IU basketball has three of the top five most improved scorers in the Big Ten. You've got Race Thompson has improved his scoring by 6.2 points a game, Armand 8.5, and Trace 6.7. Yet we're no better, maybe worse than last year. So is that just like uneven player development or is it putting too much emphasis on scoring? Like that looks impressive, especially yeah. when you're like, that's three of the top five in the whole conference yet we're sitting in ninth or 10th or wherever we're at now. What, how, how, how do those two things jive? I saw that stat when it popped on the screen and it, and you know, it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, wow. Okay. I don't know what to make of that. You know, well, I, I don't know. It can could I, be that Armand didn't, you know, he didn't play a lot of minutes last year and now he's playing 
you know, 30 minutes a game. Is that part of it? Uh, yeah. Mm. It, it, to some extent, Race Thompson was literally a, you know, more of a hustle guy last year. Now he's he's playing more minutes. I mean, that, that's a huge part of it. And Trace, Trace gets an awful lot of touches, and he shoots, you know, 17 to 20 times a game. I, I don't want to make excuses and talk these guys down. I want to build these guys up. I want us to be good. I, I don't know. That, that stat's a tough one. Although well, I, I, I kind of tend that. to think part of it is, you know, you, where your upperclassmen guards in that equation. When, right. when we're talking about guard, particularly point guard, is so important in college basketball. And Al is very hot and cold. He can really get going and then completely disappear. He can literally, you know, fall down and the ball rolls out of bounds. And then with Rob, I think we're all just sort of our hands are thrown up in the air at this point. But it seems to me like if if you don't have that coming from your upperclassmen guards, whatever improvements are going on elsewhere, it's just it's just not enough to overcome the competition that's in the Big Ten right now. Yeah, I, I mean, that that was puzzling I, that, that game, even though we took that early lead. The, the start of the game, I, that's how I know I can't coach. I, I knew I was not a coach because I can't handle stuff like that. Like I, <laughs> when you pre, when you preach about you know, like taking care of the ball and how important every possession is in the Big Ten, and we started the game and and Finnessy came across half court and gave him the ball twice. It was I, I would have just I would have just had to resign right then as a coach. <laughs> I gotta leave. I totally agree. I do want to say one thing because I saw that post two points per game are not the best metric on improvement and when you actually dig in to those stats both race thompson and armand franklin played 13 and a half minutes a game last year 13 and a half minutes a game this year they are both playing 30 minutes a game yeah but i'm sure other teams in the big 10 have players like that too hold on race thompson uh i'm sorry armand franklin has improved his three-point shooting that has been impressive he is a much better three-point shooter than he was last year. He's not better on two-point percentage. Race Thompson is getting a ton more shots. Race Thompson's free throws are awful. They have not improved. You know, Trace Jackson Davis is scoring more points per game. His efficiency is down. He is a worse two-point shooter and a worse three-point shooter. And to Brian's point, has not expanded his skill set at all. At all. He, he has not developed a right hand. He has not developed a mid-range jumper. So, yes, we can get excited about the points per game, but many people have said this. Somebody's got to score the points. Like, we don't have Devontae Green chucking shots this year. We don't have Justin Smith chucking shots. So somebody's going to score. So I think you can't look at just point-per-game improvement in the face of more than doubling your usage and think that that means skill development has increased. Armand Franklin's ball handling is no better this year. In fact, you can make the argument it's worse. You know, I mean, he makes really bad decisions and turns the ball over a whole bunch. Race Thompson has tried to expand his game. It hasn't gone that well. He is definitely better. There's no doubt. But usage, usage means a lot. And I think, like you said, Rob Finnessy has regressed. Trace Jackson Davis' skill level has stayed stagnant. You know, Al Durham is the same player that he basically was last year. You know, the same. So I just don't get too excited about points per game improvement when there's huge usage increases. Let, let's take it in this direction. You can't let Brian say that's a good point, Eric. Like, that was really good. 
I have something I'm really concerned about, and I need to ask you guys because you're closer to the game than I am, and I, I really need this question answered. With COVID, I keep hearing all kinds of different stuff. Are you telling me that every senior in the country can come back and play again? Yes. Yes. Every player. Oh, my God. This That's year. awful news. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. I wanted people to leave. I, I, this is not good. <laughs> I, I thought I heard that the other day, and it scared me. But I figured you guys would know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a mulligan year for for, hey, for everyone. Question, Brian. Hold on. Yeah. yeah. If you back in your senior year, if you were given the chance to come back one more year at Indiana, would you have even yeah. considered it? Well. That's a loaded question. Uh, you know, I had done five years already. I don't know that anyone should should do six years with coach. I'm not sure that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not even sure. I, I don't know how to answer that one. I, I think. I think you wear out your welcome after five. But yeah. I, I would. Uh, I loved my college experience. I wouldn't trade it. And um, yeah, I would have gone back. I would have gone back because I could have like. I could have left as the all-time leading scorer, which would have been pretty cool. <laughs> okay, so – Which is messed up. Hold on. That's yeah. messed up. That is going to happen all over in every sport. Volleyball, mm -hmm. I mean, every sport, you're going to have people that were like four-year solid players that are going to leave as – it's just – you've got to put an asterisk on that, guys. You have I agree. To. I agree. It For is sure. weird. It is weird that somebody – will be able to play five basically full years. Because let's be honest, last year, the only games that got canceled were the conference tournament games and a couple games in the NCAA tournament for most right. people. So, right. and it, but I will say this year, you know, instead of playing 35 games, most teams are going to be around like the 25 game. So, yeah. but it is weird. You definitely get more games. You get I a would, lot more games. I would love if Garza comes back. He's just like the Bluto. He just never uh, wants to leave college. He wants to keep the party going. Win player of the year twice. Um, but you, you mentioned five years as your tour of duty with Coach Knight. And to get through one year, one practice even, that's some real mental toughness you have or you develop. And we'd mentioned this previous show, previous guest, I'm not sure when it was, of the, the sort of uh, – enigma of last year sort of the thing you can't the intangible you can't quite put your your finger on is effort this year it's turned to mental toughness to toughness and i'm wondering on what your thoughts on that are because clearly this team it's beaten iowa twice it's taken illinois and wisconsin you know to overtime it gets up big on certain opponents, but then lets them right back in. So is that valid? Do you, do you think mental toughness is part of the issue? And if so, why? Where's that come from? Is that the players that have been recruited or the coaching they're receiving? What? Man, if I had the answer though, you know, that's a, that's a lot of questions wrapped into one. I don't know. I, you know, I know you got to be mentally tough to go on the road and win in the big, in the big 10, right? But the road isn't what the road used to be. I mean, it's, I mean, these are empty stadiums. Right. Uh, I, th I think we're seeing collectively more, you know, road teams winning than we've ever seen. And I, I, would, I would have to say that's why, right? You're not up against that hostile environment that I know we were always up against. And that had a lot to do with everybody wanting to beat Bob Knight. Um, 
and some sustained good play, you know, year over year. This team, I just, I, I'm not close enough to diagnose that, but I know that in order to be a good team of, you know, an upper echelon team of the Big Ten, so if you want to be in that top five, you're going to have to win some road games. You're going to have to hold some leads. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to be in a dogfight. You're going to have, you know, possession after possession that you got to get a stop. You got to get a bucket. Then you got to get a stop. Then you got to get a bucket. Like you have to. And you can't have these extended cold spells that we have. And our defense, although at times it looks pretty tough, you know, like we've got a nice shell in place and we're not letting, we're not giving up easy shots. Then we, we get away from that. It's like, wow, layup, layup. You know, the other team's getting exactly what they want. You could just see they're getting either an open three or they're getting the look that they want. So it's like the team goes on these little sabbaticals. They, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know if they fall asleep. I don't know if it's, if it's toughness or attention to detail or what it is, but the, the lull, uh, is killing this team. It just is. Uh, I'm always curious about this, and this may not be a fair question to ask you because you played for the greatest head coach and the, the, the biggest genius that's ever been in college basketball, maybe professional basketball too. Um, how important are assistant coaches outside of recruiting? Like forget recruiting for a second. How important are the assistants when it comes to player development, helping you improve your game? And what was your experience there? Great question. I, you know. Quit saying that, Brian. No. It makes him feel good and it makes me feel bad. Just keep, keep All going. Right. I, you know, I had somebody else say that. I, I, I think I have a habit of doing that. I said that to well, somebody the other that. day. Well, no, they stopped me and they said, so when you say that, that means every other question that was asked that you don't say that you think is a bad question. I said, well, I don't mean it that way. And then I was like, why are you, why are you nitpicking? Why don't you leave me alone? I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> Just get off my um, back. Just get off my back. I, I you know, I, I think the, the assistance and, and the role that they play, it all depends on the head coach, you know, like what's their style. You know, in Coach Knight's style was he's coming after us, and he's he's creating a really demanding environment, and so he needed to have a couple guys that could be there to you know scrape you off the ground if you'd been you know if he'd been on you a lot lately, and Norm Ellenberger was like that. Felling was a little bit that way, you know you know put your their arm around you and and say hey here's what he's trying to say here here's what he means he didn't mean that here's he here's what Coach is really trying to say try to filter out the other stuff. Sometimes you need a staff of translators, you know, uh, I, but I do think it has a lot to do with the head coach. Um, you, I, I think nowadays you see, you see head coaches. I think Larry Bird made this popular when he was with the Pacers is I got an offensive coordinator and right. defense coordinator. And, and so a coach that's doing things differently like that, that was not Bob Knight. You know, mm-hmm. he was running the whole thing. And th- I don't think, the assistants, you know, had a very vocal role other than maybe the first 15 or 20 minutes of practice when we'd, we'd kind of break up and do things, big guys at one end, guards at another end, the assistants would be running and coach would be, they'd be running the drills and coach would kind of bounce back and forth and watch before we got into the, the guts of the practice. And then so, you see Larry step away from the timeout and yeah. because, you know, the t- we went on a bad stretch of defense and Rick Carlisle's running the timeout. So, you know, I think it all depends on 
on the coaching philosophy of the head coach. And would, uh, I don't know how soon this came into the game, but would assistants, would, would, would Norm or Felling, would they do the scout on an upcoming opponent or was that all coach also? No, no, they always did that. So, but you, you could tell, you know, when we're playing Purdue and Kentucky or Michigan, uh, coach would spend more time in the locker room during the film session. So our assistants would rotate game to game to game. So they had their rotation. So it'd go Dockage, Felling, Ellenberger, Dockage, Felling, Ellenberger, and it, and it would just fall where it, where it falls. Um, but certain games you're going to play, like you knew what time it was when coach grabs the remote and sits down and starts running, running the projector back in the day. Yeah. Um, and the other thing he'd do, I, I may have mentioned this to you guys before, is we'd watch a play and put down our, our notebooks and go out onto the floor and walk through that play, come back in and watch another play, go back on the court, walk through it. You know, that was, you know, Kentucky, you know, Purdue. You know, teams that coach would never say this one means more than the other ones. He would never say that. But you could tell by the preparation that we're doing that, uh, that it was a little bit different. Hmm. Uh, obviously one of the big difference between high school and college ball is kind of the preparation and the scouting and, and knowing what the other team is going to do in, in kind of an intricate way. Do you remember like a moment when you first got to Indiana or first played in a game, probably your, your, you know, after your red shirt year, when you played against a team where you're like, Holy shit, they're, they're doing what we went through in practice. I know where this guy's going to go. I always wonder, like, is the game so fast that it just kind of washes over you? Or are there moments where you're like, I know what's going about to happen here? Oh, no, all the time. I mean, well, that's – I mean, that was, the, that was like the hallmark of Bob Knight teams, too, was preparation. So, you know, I, I knew how much we were preparing for every game. And we walked through the other team stuff a lot. That early season, if it wasn't – we would walk through if we were playing – McNeese State in the Hoosier Classic. I don't know if you guys ever went to these, but we were always a, the team favored to win those little tournaments. I don't yeah, know yeah, funny how that worked out. So we would, you know, it, it was also, you know, getting everybody into the groove, getting the assistant coaches into their groove, doing game, you know, doing the game prep. You know, you, you got to do a bunch of game prep before you're doing game prep for the Fab Five, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd watch less film early in the season. It's about us doing what we need to do. So we would watch a lot of our practice tape and a little, a little bit less of McNeese state, right? We're not yeah. going to, we're not as worried about what they're going to do because we knew we could take things away from them. But hundred percent, as we got into the you know big 10 season or my first year, you know, when, when Jalen would come up the court, you know, calling horns, we knew, yes, we absolutely knew what they were going to do. And I'm, I'm pretty certain one time I directed Juwan Howard into the right spot for him to run a play because I knew I knew where he was supposed to be and I was like you got to be at the elbow and he was like he was creeped out like they know our plays <laughs> like we're the KGB or something it's like yeah we've been scouting you all year that's great well, tell us a, a fond memory or a memory that really sticks out from the the battles with the Fab Five yeah, well, I just saw a playback of the one on Valentine's Day from 93. They, the Big Ten Network had it on. So that was my redshirt freshman year, and we beat them. So that was um, yeah, that was uh, Weber's last, you know, sophomore and final season. And they were good, man. I mean, the, the runs that they went on in the game, we'd build a 10-point lead. 
it was so much flash. I mean, there's no denying it, man. They could they could get up and down, and they had a ton of swagger. They really did. I I get a kick out of you know reading. I, I think the other day Chris Weber's like releasing a, a book on the Fat Five or a show or something, and he's you know as you know he's somewhat divorced from the rest of those guys uh, in the program. But I laughed just going, you know, the greatest recruiting class of all time. I actually commented on something they po- like Weber's uh, Instagram posted because it was just like the greatest recruiting class in the history of college sports. And I, I, I commented, and they and just think, they never won a conference tournament or conference championship. <laughs> the greatest recruiting class ever couldn't win the conference. I just I thought it was funny, but – we, you know, I grew up playing against those guys. So same year out of high school, um, AAU tournaments, and I knew all those guys' names when I was 13 years old. So, you know, it seemed like they were full grown and and running and dunking when we were 13 or 14 at the AAUs. And so for me, um, there was a pretty good barometer. Like I was like, that's how good guys are that are my age. I got a lot of work to do to try to close the gap and even belong on the same court as those guys. So, you know, one of my, one of my fond memories is, uh, hold on, my daughter's FaceTiming me. One of my fond memories is when they came into assembly hall, I'll never forget that, that game, um, in the warmups. I mean, their, their layup lines were just so much better than ours. It wasn't even funny. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was hard not to look down there just cause like, it seemed like everybody could take off. Right. And, and dunk the ball and look good while they're doing it. And I just remember looking down there and just being so offended that they were in our building dunking on our basket and just kind of running their showtime thing down at the other end. Like I just wanted to kill them so bad <laughs> for just, for just being in Bloomington, like just the nerve of them to come to that building and, and do that to our basket. I just hated them. And that's probably, you know, a memory that sticks out to me is just like, we really dislike those guys. And I, you know, Larry Bird, my favorite all time, he was like that. He didn't fraternize with guys. And that's, that is kind of the old school way. And guys aren't like that anymore. They NBA guys are in particular, like they're in like the NBA fraternity, you know, instead of, you know, the, the pacer fraternity and we hate all the other teams. It's not like that anymore in the NBA for sure. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Let's say some kid came up to you, didn't know anything about Indiana basketball, had never heard of Bob Knight, but was doing a history report and said, listen, Brian Evans, you played for this guy, Bob Knight. You're old. You're a part of history. Yeah, exactly. I need one story, one story, a personal story that you have about Coach Knight that embodies what you would want to communicate about who he was. One story. Now that is the question you were supposed to send to me in advance. I mean, that, <laughs> that is definitely putting me on the spot. What comes to mind? I would say two things. There's, there's like the on the court, off the court. So okay. off, the, off the court would be like my senior year, we finish a practice probably January, mid-January, cold as heck outside. Practice is over. I stay out there. I'm you know, just getting some extra shots up. There may have been a couple other players out there. He called, He's sitting 
at midcourt with a professor or a buddy of his, somebody that, you know, he'd always have people at practice. He calls me over and he goes, Hey, I need a favor. And I thought, you know, he's in a, the, the tone of voice was very kind. I, I wasn't in trouble. We had a good practice. He goes, we got a plane waiting for you over at the airport. You got to go up to Fort Wayne today, like right now, some sick kid, you got to go up there and sign some autographs, you know, bring some of the, you know, team calendars, you know, I'm his favorite player. We're going to bring him a signed ball by the whole team, mm. spend, you know, 30 minutes in his hospital room and then fly back. Pretty cool story. That's he did funny. stuff like that all the time. We've all heard that he did that all the time, but that's, a, that's a true story that happened with me. So that's one. The other one would be, he, um, as tough as he was, I mean, you, you did hear, you know, what you were doing wrong, but you, you definitely heard what you were doing right. Like mm. way more encouragement than tearing you down. I think he's got a probably, a, probably too much of a reputation for, you know, being hard on people because he was honest, you know, and that's how you get better. And that's why his team's kind of like Izzo, what he's doing right now his teams keep getting better late in the year yeah. because he doesn't let up and he's demanding and that's how you get better. So I, you know, we, we could talk more about that later, but that's one thing, but coach would call me in and this is senior year, fifth year. He's not angry with me. He's like, I got a tape. I want you to watch. And he was like showering or doing, doing something like he, he wasn't hawking me while I was watching. He invited me in his office gave me the remote and said, you got to watch this tape. And, and he left me alone and I got done watching. He goes, watch it again. Okay. And then he came and sat down and then we watched it together. So now I've watched it three times. This is probably like a five to seven minute tape. And it was, it was all Chris Mullen, mm. like NBA, mostly NBA, but it was spliced together. There were some St. John's in there. There was some golden state. And then there were some Pacers I want to say he was, it was like his first year at the Pacers. My, we'll have to look that up my senior year. Um, and he was just saying, you know, look at him, look at these plays he's making. He's, he's creating offense in the NBA. Is he better than you? I mean, that should be you. Why can't that be you? You know, he played for me in the Olympic team and I've coached you for five years. You should be him. He doesn't have anything that you don't have. He's not athletically better than you, but just, you know, that's, that's pretty cool, right? Because Mullen was, a, at the time, a seven-time All-Star or whatever it was, and I admired him. But Coach, he wasn't, he, wasn't always tearing guys, he wasn't always tearing guys down. He was really cool. He was like, hey, dude, that should be you in the NBA. Come on. That's, that should be your ceiling. Go. Go and do it. Did, did you ever think about the fact that, like, just to get that tape, right, just to put that tape together meant – the coach was thinking about you. How can I, time. how can I further motivate him? All right. Now I'm going to tell my guys, I want you to put together the tape. You know, they showed him the tape first and he had to approve it. Like, like there's so much stuff that goes into just that moment with you. Yep. And we don't hear any of you don't, the media portrayal of coach Knight. You don't get any of that. That's right. No, that's why I picked those stories. Cause I, those, you would never hear the story. I mean, you've heard him do nice things for sick kids. Right. Adult. I mean, but that's a real story that, that was, you know, I, I might be the only one that knows that story. Right. Cause he just did it 
like it was no big deal. Yeah, I don't it, know that anybody else was listening to that. I was going to say. And I just went and did it and came home and went back to my apartment. No, I yeah. mean, that's the last anyone and, ever heard of it. And he didn't send an Indianapolis star reporter to write about it. You know, he didn't, he didn't send the team photographer so that you could right. put it out in the Bloomington paper. Like that, that to me is the mark of the man. Now what he did that was really, really annoying though. And I'm, I'll tell you this cause it, and it's fine. I have no problem saying it. He always pronounced Chris Mullen Mullins and put an S on the end of his name, which drove me crazy. How did he not know his name? <laughs> How could he think it's Mullins? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I do wonder about those early Golden State teams because obviously we all look at the modern Golden State and give them so much credit for changing the game. But I almost feel like you go back to Don Nelson, to Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway. Run TMC. Yeah, and that that was really a precursor to say – D'Antonio, D'Antoni, <laughs> D'Antonio, and, and the Phoenix teams, which then begat these Golden State teams. And since you were coming up in college and into the pros at that time, is that sort of a fair lineage to, to where the game has gotten to today? I, well, yeah, I think Don Nelson is um, probably doesn't get enough credit for kind of that run and gun style. Doug Moe, if you're going to call people out, Doug Moe, you got to talk about him because he started that in Denver way earlier than that. Mm. Um, but, but Dan Tony was, he was in a, he was the head coach in, in Italy when I was playing over there mm. and, and everybody loved him because he, he was an American guy with Italian blood and went over there. Didn't really, you know, have great success in the NBA, but he was, an incredible leader, incredible. I mean, he was a coach on the floor. He is renowned. Nobody over here knows him like that. He is just, just a absolutely idolized uh, in Italy for his coaching and for his playing career in Milan. He was awesome, but I, I give him a ton of credit, but he put the ball in, in Steve Nash's hand. Nobody had done that. Nobody gave, you know, he, he was a six, two, you know, Canadian kid that, you know, wasn't all that impressive to look at and was, a you know, middle of the first round pick, same year, as, same draft as me. And I give, I give Dan Tony a lot of credit for handing him the ball and handing him the keys to a NBA office. I mean, Steve was a, a bench guy for his first five years in the league. Right. Um, and he was playing for Don Nelson um, in, in Dallas. But, but Dan Tony was definitely a pioneer of the fast paced offense. I think Don Nelson was too. I love the segue to the NBA because we we've gone through your career on the la on the first time you were on the show, but we didn't get to talk much about the NBA and your NBA experience. While while not you know super long, you did get to play with and for some really interesting people. Your first team you get drafted by the Orlando Magic. Brian Hill is the coach at the time who had a ton of success when Shaq and Anthony were were running the team. Shaq is gone but Anthony is still there. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, Anthony Hardaway at one point was thought of like, this is the next great player and injuries, I think really set him back. But what was Anthony like uh, in practice? What, what was he like personally? Yeah, he's a pretty quiet guy. Uh, you know, I got there in such a weird time, even looking back, I mean, they've made that 30 for 30 about it. 
because that's a what could have been story. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the the buzz was Orlando, and you know they were a young team, so they hadn't quite gotten over the hump and and won anything. I mean, they were in the the finals the one year against Hakeem, but um, they could have been great, and they had all the pieces to be great. And getting drafted there was the perfect place for me to go. I mean, they they were looking for shooting. Shaq was a very willing and able passer, drawing triple teams. Penny was a distributor of the basketball. So, you know, a two-man game, those guys were incredibly tough. Horace was a great pick-and-roll four-man that could make 17-footers all day long. So you, you, could put, you could put Penny and Horace in a pick-and-roll, right, on the right side at the elbow. And Shaq is the one diving into the into the middle of the lane. I mean, come on, that's a dream location for a shooter, right? You're right. you're in one of the other corners, and that's why they picked me. They believed I could make open shots, and then um, they made a big mistake. And if you watch that thirty for thirty, they just lowballed Shaq. They didn't, you know, the DeVos family had the money to sign him, all that Amway money, that toilet paper money. Yeah, <laughs> and um, they didn't. They didn't. They just they misdiagnosed the NBA and Jerry West was a genius as he, as he has been over and over and over, like he was with Kobe. We offered him like $65 million. And I don't remember the years. It was like three years, 60, you know, four years, 60. And Jerry West came in six years, $125 million. And then the next day, the magic said uh, 130 and he, they'd insulted him and he left mm. and nobody thought he'd leave. And, so when I got there after the draft, I mean, it, it was like um, the whole city was in a depression. Like a week after they picked me, he left for free agency. And so it was a it was a tough time. And then a lot of pressure on those other guys, right? So Horace and Penny, Dennis Scott, uh, Nick Anderson, life just got real hard for all these guys. Yeah. Getting open shots just got way more difficult. So then all of a sudden there was a lot of finger pointing and that team got a bad rap because ultimately they, they got Brian Hill fired. And it was really like more than anything, it should have been just a letter to, you know, one of those open letters, an open letter to Shaquille, man, we miss you. You were, you made life really easy for all of us. And wow, it's, it's really tough without you here. I mean, that's what happened. And so I was there at a weird time. Um, shortly after I got there, Penny started having the knee trouble and he, you know, I never really saw the explosion and, and some of the highlights that I've seen since, you know, that's not the guy that was there when I was there. You know, he just, he didn't have that kind of explosion. He was battling. I think he ended up having that micro disectomy. So his knee had already kind of grounded him by the time I got there. Got it. I got to ask about Dennis Scott. Did anybody give him a hard time <clears throat> about the tattoo on his shoulder, which of course was of his father, but it looked exactly like him. So it looked like through his whole career, he had a tattoo of his own face on his shoulder. That's funny that you caught that. I, I did notice that. And <laughs> I just only assumed that that was not a self-portrait. I, I figured it had to be somebody else, but it does look just like it. <laughs> so I thought you were going to say, give him a hard time about his weight because he, man, that guy could fluctuate. His weight would go up and down. I mean, ultimately they, you know, the part of why they drafted me was he was known to go out and have a lot of fun with Shaq. He and Shaq were thick as thieves. And I think the organization thought this guy 
has conditioning issues. He could shoot the hell out of it. There's there's no question about that. But he but he was he battled his weight, and he was running around with Shaq, and they were really worried about that. You know, Shaq was even though he wasn't a big partier, he was out. You know, he liked to be out at the clubs and having a good time, and he loved being around it. You know being the center of attention. I, I think they looked at Dennis and, and kind of like, it'd be nice if we found a younger version of him and we could ship him out of here, which is what they did. Did, did you have any um, growing pains just as a young adult really living outside of your comfort zone? I know Bloomington is different than Terre Haute, but you were in your kind of with your people for all of your life for your first 23 years. And now you're off to Orlando were there any growing pains for you on just how to be a young adult living on your own in a different city? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I, and I look back and I think, well, I didn't know much, you know, I, I didn't know very much when I first moved down there, but you know, you, you have enough success to, to get in that position, right? Confidence grows when you, when you've mm -hmm. done stuff like that. So I thought that's where I was supposed to be, you know, and I, I knew I was in the first round with all these other guys and they were off in their cities, you know, and, and, and then I saw Kobe, I, there was high school guys doing it and I'd already done five years of school. So I thought, I mean, I was probably doing a lot of things wrong, but right. I didn't feel that way. I, you know right. I mean? I felt like I can do this. I got it. You know, I'm, I live down here now. It's fine. Well, you have this incredible teacher for five years and now you're playing professionally was there somebody when you got down there, a uh, player, coach, somebody around the organization who then kind of became the, the, the mentor, the teacher, or was it a lot of just learning from who you're playing with and watching what they're doing? Well, I could go way deep on this one, but I, I wish I had a do over and I was in this era because I think they have improved player development a ton, like 25 years ago till now. I, I really, truly believe from like nutrition, um, taking care of yourself, the organizations are doing way, way more for the players than they did back then. I mean, I wasn't in the era where they were drinking beer and smoking cigarettes in the locker room after the games, which was the case back in like Steve Green's era. Yeah. They did that stuff and they weren't doing that, but it was still a far cry from what they have today. So the, the assistants weren't as active we didn't have a player development guy that was putting you through, you know, you know, grueling on the court, you know, conditioning and shooting workouts. We kind of did that on our own. I had a, I had a couple good teammates, not my first year down there where I was rehabbing my shoulder, but Derek Harper was a teammate. My second year, I really liked him and he was a pros pro Yeah, and, you know, had some big 10 blood, but was just a tough, hard nosed guy. I mean, I remember him as a New York Nick more than I do a, uh, Dallas Maverick where, where his jersey's retired but you know when I was in college he was with the Knicks and those you know Ewing teams and he was tough you know the Riley Knicks yeah yeah and and just he was just a tough guy you know just even as a teammate he was just tough like he'd, he'd pull me aside and go let's go out and get a workout in but he'd try to kill me in the work you know he'd try to steal the quickest hands out of it fastest hands of anyone I've ever played against just such a incredible defensive player really uh, strong but we'd, we'd go out and get shots up together and he'd push me Mark Price was a teammate that year nice. so I had these two you know former all-stars Mark was five or six time all-star and the great one of the nicest guys 
you know, probably to ever come through the NBA. So I was lucky to have him as a teammate. Penny wasn't a great teammate or leader by any stretch of the imagination. He was still young and, you know, locked up his $100 million deal and was, you know, getting his, his Range Rover customized. And I mean, he was into that stuff, you know, a little too much. I, I bet you anything he'd look back and wishes he would have done, you know, been a different kind of locker room presence. He just, he's a quiet guy. Some guys aren't cut out for that. But Mark Price, Derek Harper were great. Old Danny Shays, he was another teammate who, you know, shit, he was probably close to playing in the ABA for all I know. He was 40 when we were teammates. But he was a, he was a great, you know, his old man was Dolph, one of the greatest 50 to ever play. He was he was more of a mentor, like, hey, here's what you need to do. You know, go buy yourself the best mattress you could find, the most expensive mattress. You're going to be in that thing for eight or nine hours a day. This is a – take care of your body, eat the right things, drink the right things, you know, take care of yourself, you know, that kind of that kind of veteran. Those guys were great guys. The, the other thing that happens in your second year is, like you, you mentioned, the coaching change. And in comes a legend, you know. I mean, in many ways – you know, from the outside in, I looked at Chuck Daly as almost like an NBA version of Bobby Knight. He seemed larger than life, tough-nosed, demanding, came from obviously the Pistons' great tough-nosed teams. One uh, one titles with Isaiah Thomas? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know you didn't get to play for him for a long time, but any, uh, any you know, take on Chuck Daly and what he was like? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got a couple good ones. Yeah, he was he was tough. When I say it was a way different kind of tough, like not nothing was tough for me in the NBA other than <laughs> tough trying to get on the court. Right. That was the toughest part. Um, but no, I mean, these guys, everyone was a cupcake compared to, you know, the guy in the sweater. <laughs> and so I could, that was one of the hardest things for me to get used to is like, hey, no one's demanding anything. It was just kind of like, hey, we got a game today, probably have a game tomorrow. <laughs> and let's go play the game. And Chuck was a, I, but I saw the genius in him. The, the genius was, in my opinion, was not with the clipboard. Like coach was a genius with a clipboard. He was a genius without it in his hand. He was great with the, you know, the remote control for the video. And coach was just all of that, you know. Chuck Daly was more of a manager of personalities, you know, manager of people. And that's, I'm sure that's why he was the dream team coach. Uh, he, he perfect, perfect dream team coach, right? You get all these huge personalities and Chuck could actually walk in and, and, and kind of had a bigger ego than all of them. I mean, just, <laughs> he's wearing the Armani suit. He looks slick as heck, his hair. He spent more time on his hair than anybody else did, you know, put together. Well, maybe um, not Ward. Maybe I, not. I, I was waiting for Brian to bring me into it. I'm glad you, you would have loved him. You would have <laughs> loved him. I mean, <laughs> But he was smooth. I mean, Chuck was pretty smooth, and he was known as being a veteran guy, right? So I was a, ultimately like a rookie on a Chuck Daly team um, and played. I mean, I, I actually – we had injuries, and, you know, there was things that were helping me get on the court. But I had a really nice long stretch of maybe 15 games where I was averaging 12, 13 a game, and, and he was coming to me late in the games. You oh. know, we didn't have Shaq. I mean, it was Ronnie Cycli and – foul try you know for whatever reason I I mean I had a stretch of where I was getting the ball in my hands at the end of games and Chuck said some really great things about me to the press at the time like hey I wasn't even sure I wanted this guy on the roster and here you know here I am getting in the ball at the end of games that you know it's a 
a testament to how hard this guy works. So I've got neat articles with really cool Chuck Daly quotes that I, I think are great just because who he was. I hated the Pistons, so I kind of hated him. <laughs> when I, you know, when I first met him, I was a Celtic fan. So, you know, his assistant was a guy named Brendan Sewer, and Brendan looked. I mean, I think he played some D three basketball, but you'd never know it by looking at him. Um, little bitty guy, you know, heavy set guy. I was, I went at these dudes because I couldn't believe in the NBA so many possessions. Right, we were losing games. You remember Nick Anderson went to this horrible funk. He couldn't shoot free throws. It all happened from that finals against the the Rockets. When I got there, I was playing behind a guy that I felt like I should be playing in front of. And I have a lot of respect for Nick, but he was in a career funk for sure and couldn't shoot it. He wasn't defending like he could. And I was was like, man, if I can't get in front of him, and I didn't know the NBA that well. I didn't know. You know, they just gave him a, a, the new contract and big money at the time. They had to let him kind of play through his funk. Uh, but I used to go up to Brendan at timeouts at the end of games as we couldn't make foul shots. And just, I mean, and he, he hated me talking to him. I'd just come up to him and just start <laughs> tapping him on the shoulder. I'd go to Tree Rollins, was another one of our assistants going, you know, I was not afraid to get in the game and shoot free throws at the end. I'm like, look, no one can make a foul shot. I will make the foul shot. I said, I will close out the game. And if we inbound the ball to me, they're going to foul me because I'm not, I, you know, I'm a rookie that hasn't played. They will foul me and I will make the foul shot. And they would not let me, they wouldn't let me go in. So I was, I politicked against those guys a bunch and just like, Brendan, why are you letting guys that shoot 65% shoot these critical foul shots at the end of games? Is this what the NBA is? Apparently the answer to that is yes. <laughs> By the I'm way, I'm curious should... about um, the lifestyle on the road. You know, you're a young guy, you're out in the world. Um, did you struggle at all to find a balance between going out after a game or were you just pretty focused on keeping yourself right? No, I, it wasn't hard for me. I, I didn't even know what nightlife was. I don't think I'd, you know, I knew what it was in Bloomington, and that was kind of what I was comfortable with. So if there wasn't, you know, I think the guys on my team were probably, you get that extra night in L.A., I mean, I wasn't interested in going where, if I had guys on my team going out, I wasn't going to go there. I was like a a pub guy, you know, or I'd want to go to some bar and have a beer and had no interest in going to a nightclub or anything like that. So, and I, so I didn't even know what that, the nightlife really was in the did NBA. You, and did you have a buddy like on the team who would go to that pub with you or did you just end up drinking by yourself? <laughs> no, I didn't. I really didn't drink at all when I was playing. I mean, if I went into Phoenix and I you know, had a buddy from college that was living in Phoenix, we'd go out and have some beers. Right. But that's it. I mean, I, majority of the time I stayed in I don't I mean I I it's a it's a minor regret and that I didn't even get out and on a game day walk the streets of enough cities you know if I had to do over I would have gotten out of the the hotel a little bit more and grabbed a coffee I didn't drink coffee right I'd have grabbed a coffee and walked the streets of Portland or Seattle and seen something I didn't do any of that kind of stuff and I, I do regret it you know, so, so quick because oh, I was just gonna say, safe to say, a very different experience than Jared Jeffries. Very different. <laughs> well, I don't know what he did. I don't know. Oh, yeah. did, but you the, tell me. The he was at 
He was out with the other guys. Yeah, he was the opposite of that. Um, I just looked it up real quick. Nick Anderson was like a career 46% field goal shooter. And the year you're talking about coming out of the finals, he dropped to 39%. I mean, he could not, he could not hit water if he fell out of a boat. I mean, he was close to 50 from the foul line. And, he, and he's a way, way better shooter than that. I mean, right. way better. So then you get traded which is always a weird thing the first time it happens. You know, you always hear the cliches from people when they get traded. Well, you know, it's a business, you know, it's a business. But I'm curious if you can, one, talk about just what was that like the days before? Did you know it was coming? What it was like when it actually happened? And then you're moving to New Jersey to go play for John Calipari. Walk us through that whole process. So the trade, I got a good trade story. So... Heading up to the deadline, they, the Magic never really fell in love with Ronnie Cycli. He he was a difficult personality just because he was unique, and I liked him. But he kind of – I could see how he was a challenge for an organization. Just I think he had a lot of family money and didn't really need the NBA money. Got and it. so he, he was motivated by other things. It, you know, it wasn't all live-or-die basketball. And, you know, he was just unique. And, you know, he was – you know, born in Lebanon, raised in Greece. He just he had his own culture and background and just I, – I, I thought he was a fascinating guy. Um, he loved me even though I reminded him of – I always would write 74, 73 on the whiteboard. <laughs> I always put it in the locker room. I would just write – I sat right next to the, the dry erase board, so I would just write it on there every day. And <laughs> – he had a good sense of humor about it, um, but he was a good dude. So anyway, he, you guys might remember this. He, he would not report. He got traded. We all knew they were going to move him. They traded him to Utah and he wouldn't go. And so Ronnie was the first guy that just said, no, I'm not doing it and did not get on a plane. And I could, I'm going to have trouble remembering the names of these guys. Um, Gosh, darn. Want me to look something up? Well, these two guys from Utah got traded to the Magic, and they showed up, and we had a practice with them. And you're going to say the name is going to – kind of a light-skinned guy that always wore like a flat top. Four May's a power forward, pretty good athlete. I'm I'm looking it up right now. And he had a few good years with the Jazz. I mean, he was a – he was a name you guys will remember. Greg Foster and Chris. Yep. Was that it? Yeah, Chris Morris. Chris Morris and Greg Foster. Got it. Oh, yeah. Greg Foster was the guy I was describing. So, you know, both like one's a three, one's a four. They, they show up. They, they're in a, like a morning shoot around with us. They have a game. They get held out of the game. They pass the physical. Ronnie didn't report to Utah. So we're about a week away from the deadline. Those guys end up getting sent back to Utah. Holy and so we all knew that there was going to be a trade, right? We knew they were going to have to move them before the deadline. I didn't, I didn't want to move because I, you know, I was kind of settled and, you know, I was, I was comfortable and Chuck was playing me more. And like I said, I was on a stretch at that time where I was getting, call it 12 to 18 minutes and, you know, scoring and, and doing fine rebounding and whatever. Um, so the day of the tr- the day of the trade deadline, it's that morning. We have a day off, 
which is classic NBA. They don't they they want everyone to have a day off just so when the trades happen they don't have to see you. There's <laughs> <laughs> all this avoidance thing. So that morning I get a phone call. We had we were down in numbers. We had a bunch of injuries and a couple illnesses and and so they're going to they're going to work somebody out uh they're looking at for a 10-day contract, okay? And who do they call? They call a young guy. They and one of our assistants calls me up and goes, "Hey, will you come in?" at like 10, 11 o'clock and, and work out with this guy we're looking at for a 10 day. And I'm like, all right, fine. I go in and guess who it is? Spud Webb. <laughs> <laughs> so now I had a Spud Webb poster on my wall as a kid. It was the one that was like a horizontal poster uh-huh. And it was like the, the frame by frame of him in the dunk contest when he went up and sure. won the thing. Cool poster. And I don't. I, I think he'd been out of the league for maybe a couple years. You know, he hadn't played. Like after Atlanta, he was in Sacramento. But he had been out of the league for at least a full year, maybe two. And they're going to work him out. And he was tight with Tree Rollins, right, from the Atlanta days. And uh, Brian Hill was tight with Fratello. And, you know, they were – because they were – so Brian Hill – and, and Chuck, they're all kind of intertwined as like the Philly Jersey guys, right? Okay. So they're trying to give Spud a workout. I go in, and it's Chuck Daly sitting in his seat that he sits in for the games. Next to him is Dr. J. So you could look this up. Dr. J, because of the Philly connection, and our front office with Pat Williams, former IU guy, yeah. they were all Philly. And that's, you know, that's the group that came down and was able to, you know, form the magic. Um, Dr. J sitting there again. I'm a bird guy, not a Dr. J guy. And then the assistant, the staff, and our general manager, and all these guys. And it's the day of the trade deadline. 6:30 is the deadline. And so I'm in there, and and I was not afraid of Chuck. I mean, he got in my case several times, even during games where he wouldn't get on Nick, and he'd get on me for you know Tom Hammond scored on me one time early in the second quarter, and it was his 14th point. It was a turnaround fadeaway bank shot from 17, and it was his 14th point. And I had a hand in his face, and Chuck called a timeout and, like, met me on the court to yell at me. And I thought, this guy just scored 12 on Nick in the first quarter. He never said a word, right? (laughs) So I said, you know, I said something to him. I said, that's his seventh basket. You haven't said a fucking word, and now you're going to yell at me. And – um. But Chuck was a pro. I mean, he, you know, he it didn't bother him. He didn't take me out of the game. You could say that to him, and that's why I liked him. Um, anyway, they want us to play one-on-one, me and Spud. <laughs> and I'm going, and listen, I, you guys, trust me, I I know that's not who I am as a player, one-on-one. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to play anybody one-on-one. <laughs> and um, I'm like, all right, so they give me the ball. And I'm just like, one-on-one, right? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. So this guy is 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. I mean, he really is. <laughs> and so I just I just put the, the ball in my trusty left hand and just just turned to the side and just banged this guy down onto the post and shot a little jump hook and knocked him into the stanchion. <laughs> and he fell down, got up. I helped him up. And I thought it was cool. I was – I met Spud Webb. I wasn't trying to, you know, I was, I was like, all right, I'll play one-on-one. So I did that three times in a row 
So, I mean, the exact same thing three times in a row. Never, I didn't shoot a jump shot or anything. Never defended Spud because I had the ball the whole time. Make it, take it. I scored three times, and Chuck Daly yelled at me and kicked me out. He goes, just get out of here, and kicks me out. And then that night at 6.30, I mean, I had a weird feeling in my stomach. Just going, that's my, you know, it's a deadline and all this kind of stuff. And um, I get a phone call at 6.37. I'm watching the ticker on ESPN, and I get a call at 6.37, so seven minutes past the deadline says Orlando Magic on the caller ID. I'm like, oh, shit. Hello? Hey, Brian, it's John Gabriel. He's our general manager. He goes, you've been involved in a trade. And you're going to New Jersey, you and Ronnie, and blah, 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 blah. He barely had time to tell me who was in the trade. And then and he said, look, I drafted you. You belong, you know, gave me a nice little monologue for a minute. You got it. You know, you can play in this league. You proved it. You know, best like I'm going to be watching you. Um, we had to make this move, as you know, with Ronnie, blah, blah, blah. Right about that time, I, it, you know, I get a, a call from the Nets. And I told him, I said, I got to take the call. I answer it, it's Cal. And Cal's just hyped. I mean, classic John Calipari. He's just, you know, all energy, all intensity. Uh, he's on the line. They got me on speaker with uh, him and the, a guy named John Nash, who was the uh, GM of the Nets, who'd been around the league for a long, long time, actually was with the Bullets when they drafted Calvert. Oh wow! And um, so he was he was there for that. Anyway, he they were like, "Hey, listen, Cal was talking. He goes, listen, there was five different scenarios to this trade, five different working scenarios, and you were in one of them, and that's the one I picked. So this was Cal talking to me, going, you know, just trying to let me know whether it was BS or not. I, you know." Ronnie was in all of them. I picked the one you were in. I want you here. I believe you could. Sh- I, I believe you have a you know an elite skill uh, that translates to this league, and you know you're going to have time to shoot. He goes, listen, man. I don't know what it's been like there. He goes, but when when you're open, the light is green, baby. You're going to shoot it. And I you know I went and boarded the plane the next day pretty excited because yeah. of my my conversation with him. Wow. So then so- you get there. Yeah, what was the reality? We're we're Indiana fans, so you know we're bred and born to hate John Calipari, um, but clearly we're also not total idiots. We're idiots, but not total idiots. Most people that have played for Cal really like him. So, what was your experience with him as as a coach player and also just as a person? You know, um, probably just a undecided more than anything. I mean. Keep in mind, he was 39 years old. Right. You know, I think about that when I think about him as, you know, I'm 47 years old, and he was a kid, you know, and and he definitely didn't know, didn't know which way was up, you know, in the NBA at that time. And I've said since then, if he wanted to go to the NBA, it'd be a different story now. I think. Um, well, any team he'd go coach would have at least three of his former players on it. Right. But no, he, can't, no doubt. he can't go to the NBA now because he'd have to deal with a salary cap. <laughs> I'll, I'll be here all week. I'll be here. Yeah, I think he's dialed this thing in so good that he doesn't have to cheat at all because he's got now such a great story to tell about getting guys to the league. Yeah, you're probably um, that's that's kind of how I feel about him. 
I, I would have been fine with him, you know, as our coach uh, over the last 20 years, anytime. I, I know that he can do it at a really high level at that, in that level. Um, I don't know that even if he went back to the end, but he likes to yell and scream and stomp his foot and do a lot of things that don't translate to the NBA. So he was doing that kind of stuff. And, and he lost the, the veteran guys early. I saw him lose Sam Cassell early. As soon as I got there, I was like, well, these guys don't like him. Mm. And that's, that is the kiss of death in that league. You can't be that guy. You know, you can become that guy once you've won titles. Like Greg Popovich wasn't who Greg Popovich pretends to be now. And I'm not a big fan, and I'm fine saying it. I'm not a big fan of his. And But the only thing I will say that he says, Greg Popovich is willing to say, is that Tim Duncan won five titles. <laughs> and Tim Duncan was the greatest teammate I ever had, and I think one of the greatest, if not the best, that's ever done it in that league because he bred, you know, teamwork, and he wanted to be treated like the 12th man. Jordan can't say that. Jordan, athletically gifted, he went and won titles. I believe the greatest teammate, if it's not Bird, that ever played in that league is Tim Duncan. And so you get to become, it's like Bull Durham, right? You can grow mold on your shower shoes once you've, you know, won 20 games in the show. That's Greg Popovich. I mean, he's people find him unique and quirky and funny now because he won five titles. If Tim Duncan wouldn't have shown up in 1997, you wouldn't even know who that guy is. Mm. So I want to ask you about Cal because, like you said, you know, you're probably like 25, 26 around that time. He's 39. It's not a huge discrepancy in age. Um, his name did come up when we, when Indiana, I say we, I know I had nothing to do with it, but when Indiana hired Crean post the Samson year, Calipari's name came up in, in this search for Indiana. And I even think there were some conversations and I even think Calipari expressed interest in the job. I'm just curious because of your past relationship with him, did, did, did you guys stay in touch? Did that ever come up when that was going around? Yeah, yeah, it did. So I, I caught some flack from even from Dockich on this. Um, Cause after he got fired or, you know, just here, he didn't come back. Right. They, um, you know, he wanted to see what kind of traction he could get and if he could get a bunch of support, you know, to get the job. Um, and so, although I wasn't a big Calipari guy, my experience with him wasn't great. I mean, I got opportunities and I, I, you know, I could tell you real quickly what they were. I had a game against the Hawks where Henderson was there and I had a 15 or 16 point first half Kendall Gill. Now I'm playing against behind another Illinois guy who was struggling. Kendall was having like probably the low point of his pro career when I got there. Um, and we were much different. We complimented each other really well, right? He's a defender, fill the lane, good on the break um, and didn't shoot it all that well. And, you know, I was a better rebounder shooter, you know, so we, we, he'd play the first quarter, I'd play the second. And then, you know, Cal would decide kind of on the second half from there. Well, Kendall didn't like playing half the game and we were down like 12 or 13 after the first quarter. I had a big second quarter and I want to say our team, our second unit was pretty good. We ended up, I like up 12 or 13 at the half and I had 15 or 16 points and had made four or five, four threes, I think. Four or four. Never, I'm looking at it. Four or four threes. Never checked back into the game. 
never did. And Kendall just threw a, a fit at, a little hissy fit at halftime, just classic baby stuff. You know, Cal, you're messing with me. You don't give me a chance. You're messing with my head. Cal does the old, you know, let's hug it out in the locker room. I'm going to show you how behind you I am. I never checked back in the game. Mm. And after the game, you know, Allen and I want to say Mookie Blaylock and somebody else, Steve Smith, came up and were like, what happened? Did you get, are you hurt? And I was like, no, I'm fine. And like, why didn't you play? And I'm like, I don't know. And I may have said something to Alan about Kendall and he goes, man, all we did, all we, all Lenny Wilkins talked about at halftime was you and you never came back in the game. And so that was like a cow story. He was just so young and dumb and didn't know anything and, and just was kissing veteran ass, which does not get you anywhere. And so I didn't, I didn't have a great opinion of him, to be honest. I thought even then, this guy belongs in college and he'll be a great, he's a great college coach, but this NBA thing, unless he learns, you know, I knew he was going to get fired. We started that his second season or third season really poorly and they fired him. Um, yes. I heard from him. We had not kept in touch. He had never called me. Uh, when we, when I got traded to Timberwolves, I mean, never followed up. I was supposed to play, um, Pine Valley with him, which was like a bucket list golf course in Jersey. Once the weather broke, um, which would have been right after I got traded from there. And which was, you know, my second, I'd been there for a whole year and he and I never played it, but we had made plans to play. I mean, he was a good enough guy, like on the airplane, like you're shooting the shit with him. He was fine. I mean, I, I actually liked him. Um, he just didn't manage the, the team all that well at that time. Um, as soon as the job opens up and, and Samson gets fired, all of a sudden I'm getting texts and phone calls from him. <laughs> uh, not sure how he tracked me down. You know, I, I don't know, but he got my number. And what was amazing was he was so well prepared for the, for the, an opportunity to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable. I mean, he was, he was in Memphis he had Derek Rose at the time. Um, he he knew a bunch of important names, like he knew Harry Gonzo's name, and mm. you know people that we kept hearing were important that shouldn't be important to the job search for Indiana men's basketball. Which, if I was going to attack our school for some of what we've done over the last twenty years, it would start there. Why are we letting people that don't know shit about basketball? have an opinion about basketball. I just don't think we've ever done a great job with it. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, at that time, it was the worst. Rick Greenspan was the AD. Chris Reynolds was the, you know, the men's basketball representative. Um, I've talked to Calipari three or four times on the phone. He's blown me away by the, the prep that he had put into it and made the hair on my neck stand up when he told me, you know, we had just lost Greg Oden and Conley to Ohio State. You know, I think they had just played their, you know, their one and only year there. So this is right, 07, 08, isn't that right? Right yeah, then? A couple years after that. Just yeah. a couple years after that, yep. So he's like, um, you know, Thad Mata will not be welcome in the state of Indiana. Bruce Weber had come over and gotten Gordon commitment at the yeah. time. Bruce Weber will not be allowed in the state of Indiana ever again i will own the state of indiana talent will not leave indiana i'll in the first five years we'll win three big 10 championships 
at least one national championship and blah, 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 blah. I mean, there was no shortage of confidence in this guy at all. Um, And it was, it was awesome to listen to. And he started talking specifically about players. He goes, okay, I'm in Memphis, right? He goes, this is 70% a commuter school. I got railroad tracks running through the middle of campus. You know, (laughs) there's not a, there's not one, you know, Oak tree on this campus. He goes, I can't get Kyle Singler to visit Memphis. I can't get Kevin Love. They were the two high school players that were top five guys at that time. He goes, I cannot get them to visit me no matter what I do down here. They will not visit Memphis. He goes, but bet your ass I could get them to come to Bloomington Mm -hmm. for sure. And then one of the quotes I remember, he told me that if, and I, and I said something back, like, cause it was in the pay. You just thought he was too highly paid and we were all being trained to think we don't have any money. Remember that? Like, oh, I don't have any money. And I said, what about the money? He goes, I don't give a shit about money. He goes, all you do is you come in and win and they re up you and you get the money. He goes, I don't need any money. I don't, I don't, I don't need any money. I'll come there and win. And then they'll give me whatever I want. I mean, it was that kind of confidence. He goes, you give me this job. He goes, I will do backflips to Bloomington all the way from Memphis. I will backflip my way to campus. I'll never forget him saying that. He wanted the job. And he just said, if I get on one of these, if I get in one of these blue blood programs, if I could get on that stage, it is over. Wow. By the way, you were right. The Odin Connolly played for Ohio State in 06, 07. It was right on the heels of that. Um, wow. I mean, wow. But, but because there are questions about his character, and uh, the way he went about running a program, we hired Kelvin Sampson instead. No, 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 no. Well, we hired Tom Crean. No, no, oh, that, that was when Sampson came out. Okay. So they, I mean, Crean, whatever. So to be clear, he wanted the job both times. So I heard from him before we hired Sampson too. And he, that blew him away. And he, he was blown away that he didn't even get a sniff when we hired Kelvin. And then the second time, and these are the only times that he ever called me, guys, before. <laughs> that tells you about him, though. That does oh, yeah. inform you a lot about him. Yep. And he, and he, so anyway, he, he uh, started calling me again, talking to me again, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then when we hired Crean, he called me again and he said, hey, you got a good one in Tommy. You know, no one's going to outwork him. He's going to work his ass off. He's not, you know. He's going to do things the right way. You guys will be okay. But, I mean, he, he actually did the follow-up. But here's what I did. I told him, I said, I don't think I have a a voice in this thing. I, I know I don't. And I, and I said, I, I don't know who does. Like I, And this is when I – I mean, this I, I think we had an athletic department, a university, that deserves to be ripped for that time. That was a, that was a horrible time. Agreed. I get a phone call. I, I, I don't know. I, I heard from Chris Reynolds, right? And who I really loved as a teammate, you know, I had two years with him and admired, you know, him as a teammate and as a person, he calls me up and goes, Hey, can you come down? Uh, Rick would like to speak to you about the job opening. And I said, all right. So I drive down to Bloomington and I'm with Chris in a room and Chris goes out and starts shuffling around and comes back in and starts talking to me about the job. Like, you know, you know, what sorts of qualities should we be looking for? And I looked at him kind of puzzled. I'm like, where's Greenspan? You know, where is he? I, I didn't come down. I mean, you and I could 
just text each other, you know what? Hey. Why am I down here? And he goes, well, he got he got pulled into another meeting and there's, you know, busy time. And I said, dude, I'll wait. I'll just wait. I'm, you know, I came down here to talk to him and I was prepared to tell him what I had heard from Cal again, not a huge Calipari fan um, necessarily, but he was, he just ran the table twice at Memphis was like 64 and three in his last two seasons. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, he, he had three or four 31 seasons in a row and he wanted to talk about the job. So I was just going to say, hey, for whatever it's worth, before I could do that. So he joins the meeting. I'm sitting down and certainly, you know, felt him looking down the tip of his nose at me for whatever reason. And as he talks about the qualities, and I said, do you mean like graduates, players, and like what kind of – is that what you want me to say? And he goes, yeah, I mean, the types of qualities that we should be looking for in our next coach. And I was like, well, I mean, I, about winning. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I tried to segue into that I had heard from him several times that I had played for him briefly. And I'm not trying to play it up like I was his buddy. I said, you know, I, was a, I would have told him the same story I told you guys. I didn't have the greatest experience, but you couldn't argue with his results at that level, right? And before I could even say his full name, he kind of pointed at me and said, Brian, in no way, shape, or form am I soliciting names from you. I said, okay. Okie dokie. And that was that. Oh, how much rage. Because I'm feeling rage right now hearing that 14 years later. Did you I, – I, my face would go red if somebody talked to me like that after what you had given to Indiana University to be. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, but he's not a part of Indiana university. I've, I've been a part of it again. That's our leadership. I mean, that, why is a guy that doesn't know squat about Indiana university hiring our coach? I mean, we, we care about it as a fan base way more than this guy did way more. Totally. And and, you know, I don't remember his track record. I, you know, I don't remember any of that. And, and he was a pleasant guy. Like, I went that season, the, the Kelvin Sampson season, I went to a couple games. And one of the games, I was right behind the bench, like by Fred Glass. And Greenspan came up and grabbed me and goes, come here, sit with me at the scores table. And if you go back and look at that game, the Killingsworth, that game, it was loud. Go go pull up a clip to that. I'm sitting right at the scores table with Greenspan, and so he's nice to me. I mean, it's not like he he was friendly to me, and I just don't think we had the greatest leadership. That you know, that job search I don't think was done very well. And 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 even the next one, even the Archie one, just it's my opinion. And I like Fred Glass a lot. He treat has always treated me great. I, I he's phenomenal. I, I I really like Fred a lot. But the story I've heard is that we honed in on Archie, and that was our choice. And 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 Scott Dolson, you know, current AD, told me the story. We that, that's our guy. We knew it was our guy. We just went and got him. Fred doesn't like to fly, so we made one trip and and hired him. Um, I hate that story personally. Yeah. Like, you know, line them up around the building. You know, if you said, hey, the Indiana jobs open, somebody come and come and get this thing. I think you'd have had 
Rick Pitino out there in line. I think you had a lot of guys in line that want to come and tell you why it's, why it's their job. Um, I don't know why we'd ever be too freaking busy to listen to those guys. Why are we too busy to listen to those guys? Map out for us why you want this job so bad. And we're not going to listen to those guys. We're not going to listen to Calipari tell us. Is that we're not going to take two hours to listen to John Calipari tell us why he could win at IU? Not going to do it? Okay. That's just terrible leadership back then at that time. And this most recently, that's just my opinion of a job search. Even if you thought for sure it's Archie Miller because you have some FBI forensic way of doing this deep dive into who our next coach should be and all the reasons why it's Archie Miller. Let's five other big names come in and do their pitch. Why wouldn't you? That's just going to solidify. Yep, we were right. It's Archie. We knew it. Why would you not go see him? I don't understand that. They'll come to you. You just got to be in your office. And they didn't do it. Well, we do have new leadership. And even if Scott was there, it was in the capacity of being Fred's right-hand man. How much does it mean to you and how important do you think it is for the athletic department to have a guy like Scott, who is one of us, has always been one of us, was there for a title with Coach Knight? Like, that's progress, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, ex- I, I'm excited that Scott is there. Uh, I, was, I was really thrilled when I heard he got the job. He's no question paid his dues. Um, more than anything, I felt like we had to connect all of our history with, you know, the current. And, and that's not just basketball players and like, oh, let's kiss the ass of old guys that don't freaking really matter anymore. And I, I think this is a huge job. And I still think it's the best job in the country. Um, I don't think it's viewed like that by everybody else, but I think it should be, right? And so I think we, we should have whoever we want that's not named Krzyzewski as our coach, whoever we want, if we execute. Um, I'm probably full of crap to think that. I, I think Scott gives us a great – so he doesn't just connect old guys like me and old managers and old coaches and all those. He connects old money. I mean, he, he's, he had to be a professional gladhander for 30 years. He knows the fabric of Indiana basketball as well as anybody. Um, he's a great person. He, he, I, I think he's perfect for us right now. And I hope that he doesn't settle for anything less than the best. You know, time is going to show it. It's going to play out. But I really like Scott. I, I think it's time to, to have somebody – the next time this job is open – let me, let me be a little more correct. I want Archie to fix this thing, and I want our program to be a winner, a perennial winner, and challenging at the top third of the Big Ten every year. We're not there, let's be honest. In the tournament every year, that's what the program should – that's the baseline of the program. Um, I heard Dockage say it earlier today. He's ready for somebody that's – been a part of our program to be the coach. The next time the coaching job is open, hopefully that's 15 years from now, he wants it to be somebody like Dane Fife or Michael Lewis, somebody that's current in coaching that would lay down on the tracks for Indiana to be a winner again. That's just going to hustle and hustle and hustle 
for us to have a winner and, and just and not accept anything less than that. Um, I'm not too far behind. Yeah. Can you tell us, if you read, you know, Dockich loves to make fun of the blogger boys out there, uh, of which we are not. We do not blog, so we are safe. Dockich <laughs> has confirmed for me that we are not blogger boys, so I'm happy about that. But when you do read some of these people who have never played basketball, who love to opine and act like they're experts, they will tell you things like, oh, that whole idea of being connected to players of the past and the legacy, and that's all just fan emotional BS talk. That's you not getting it. This is analytics and winning and losing and percentages and margins and blah, blah, blah. But you played there for five years. What did it mean to you as a player to be connected or feel the aura of the past that came way before you? You know, obviously you played in the 90s. The 70s team was 20 years before you. What did it mean to just have those guys around in some capacity and have them have a presence at Indiana? No, I mean, so I'm unique in that I was, I think, the greatest IU basketball historian that ever played there. I, that's mm -hmm. my claim to fame is I believe I love the pinstripes more than, or the candy stripes more than anybody else as a child uh, and then got to play there. So I knew the names of these guys. I knew what number they wore. I knew the roster top to bottom. I know that's how you guys were. I, I knew that, you know, Tony Freeman was from now I'm going to draw a blank. Um, I knew Jamal was from, you know, Fremont or free, you know, I, I just, I was always into the roster and I studied the calendar. I loved all that stuff. And then when I was playing there, I always like, I read the media guide cover to cover. So I knew all these names of these guys. I knew their faces. So when they were behind the bench, even my redshirt year at a timeout, I was always staring at the former players and I knew them all, you know, there's Magnus Pelkowski. There's, you know, I knew, I knew these guys. And so, yes, for me, um, that was heavy. And it, it's, it's hard to believe that I was able to be a part of that. And that, you know, even when we did that clubhouse call that some of these younger guys, you know, paying some homage to a guy like me, I started trying to do the math. Like, Will Sheehy might be a politician. I'm like, I'm not sure. I think I'm too old for this guy to have ever seen me play. Yet he's sitting here kind of stroking me a little bit. I, I was like, is this fraud or is this real? Um, it's, time, it's real with time flies. It's real but with time flies, right? Like, I didn't see Kent Benson play. I don't remember that. But I know all about his career, you know. But I, I knew all these guys because I was an Indiana fan. So, I, you know, I was laughing at, when we were talking with him because he's a Florida kid. And I'm going, now, does he really know? Name, random names like guys like me from, you know, the 90s. I, you know, maybe he did. Maybe he did. Well, he would I, have had to have been a basketball junkie. I, but I think it's more that he showed up and with his uncle playing at a yeah. high level, you know, and Indiana being the only place he didn't get recruited to when Indiana was by far the best program in the country. So I'm sure he heard about it growing up. But I think, you know, there's a case of at least the culture that Tom Crean had around at that point, And certainly his opening press conference was like, it's Indiana. Like Tom Crean yeah. certainly understood it. And Will just being there for the time he was, I think he, he learned it and, yeah. and became it. 
And, and so I don't, I don't think there's anything false about, you know, Will having learned that stuff later in life, not growing up with it. But he, fortunately, he was there for one of the very short windows we've had since you left, frankly, where, where we, we were great for part of a season. We were the number one team in the country. So maybe that's all connected. Maybe those players learning about and appreciating what it once was has a real tangible result on the court. Well, he was great. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would have to agree with that. And he was great in that on that call because I thought he phrased uh, obviously a really intelligent kid. Number one, you could see that, but he also was knew his place and he knew what he brought to the table. I thought we we had that conversation about um, recruiting, and and he, he I thought he framed it really nicely. You got to. You got to hunt for the Jared Jeffries. You got to hunt for a blue star or blue chip every other year, but you better be filling them in with guys that are going to be okay being contributors. And he was, he was calling himself a contributor. I think he was more than that, but the point well taken, right? Pat Graham, as good as he was Leary. And we had a lot of really good players. We had McDonald's all Americans that realized on our teams, they're contributors. Right. And you got to play a role in, Hey, you know what? Maybe my, you know, I'm not trending towards the NBA. Does that mean I want to bail out? I think nowadays kids are, it's like NBA or bust, right? They're going to go try to find a program, transfer around until somebody tells them how great they are. Will, Will hit it on the head. I mean, that team was full of guys that I was okay with coming, you know, seeing them come off the bench. Oh, Oladipo's in. You know, different guys coming in out of the game are like you wanted to see them play. I don't feel like that anymore. I, I look, I'm like, oh shit, who, who can we put in? We got to put somebody in. And then you look at the bench. I'm like, I don't know. No, I don't know about him. Um, but yeah, he was on, he was on it, you know, teams where you like the general makeup of the team. And he had Calvert there for a year. So in terms of also where he could have gotten the scoop on who Brian Evans was, I'm sure, I'm sure Calvert shared some pretty good stories. Yeah, I don't know, man, but I, you know, those are guys that you like. That was fun getting on with them because Moye was a guy. There was, there was, that was just an interesting group of guys, right? Yeah. Um, that we had on that call, guys that are, you know, to me at least, are Indiana guys. You know, that that I'll remember is that's the kid that you'd want on every team. You know, Moye, Will Sheehy, you don't ever want that guy to graduate. He just, you need those guys on the team every year. I couldn't agree more. And I will tell you, Brian, he said it on that clubhouse call. You came at some point early in his career and spoke to the team um, during cream. And when I told Sheehy that you were going to be on the clubhouse thing, when I was asking him to do it, he talked about that. He was like, that meant something to him. Like he saw the intensity in your eyes. He saw the passion and that helped him learn that, Oh, I'm not just playing for a team. Like, I'm not just playing to score more than the other team, like today. It's I'm playing for something special. And it's what Ward and I have talked about a lot. You do not have to be from Indiana to be an Indiana guy. Like, I think that's where people get lost. The whole team doesn't have to be made up of guys from the within the border of Indiana, right? And and I do feel the same way somewhat about the coach. We need the right, the right guy. But yeah. you do have to make, you do have to communicate to these guys from outside the borders why it's special, and the best way to do that is with the guys who did it before, and that fabric definitely seems to have been lost. Um, well, and and it I, feels that I like, way when you watch the team play. 
And I like Brian, your swag when you're talking about make these coaches line up and come tell us why we should allow them to lead this program rather than going hat in hand to people or just deciding on one and going straight for it. Because look, it's not everybody's cup of tea. And if you can go to the SEC and and wade into very murky waters and do that whole thing, yeah, we don't we don't want you anywhere. There's there's enough good coaches in this world who understand not just the history, but also just like the present budget of our basketball program to be like, I would kill for this job. And if that guy isn't willing to say that and to do backflips from wherever he's at to Bloomington, then he ain't the right guy and keep, keep moving. No doubt. And and, and let me double down on that. And that's what I thought was so attractive about Cal saying that was he didn't give a shit. He wanted me to tell people he wouldn't, Hey, don't tell anyone because I don't want Memphis to find out that I'd take the IU job. He's, he he would have told he would have just skipped out of town for the job. He, <laughs> but that's what's so great about him is that that's how bad he wanted the gig. And so you got all kinds of guys that wouldn't throw their name that wouldn't line up at outside Assembly Hall because they're afraid they're going to lose. That's not our guy. Right. If you're afraid that you're going to get you're your mid major, you're afraid that you're going to get fired from your job because you showed interest in Indiana. Man, you're not going to have the chops to make it over it in Indiana if you were afraid of that. Couldn't because it's be it is a big job. It is, and I I think eventually it swallowed uh, Crane whole because it's a huge job and it's a demanding job, and you know we're demanding to get back to where we want to be, and it's tough. And, and I think the job changed him, and I got to be on the record for saying he was great to me. You know, he invited me down to talk to the team several times. Every time I did, he always sat and listened. I wish he would have left me alone with the team and let me, it would have changed my message a little bit. But by the third or fourth time that he listened in on my, whatever I was saying, I started really kind of letting it fly. And I'm sure that's what Will remembers is he has, Kareen asked me for a fire and brimstone speech one time before a Purdue game. And this was, Hummel and Juwan Johnson. It was one of the, you know, when they were a good team and it was like Crean's second or third year, we were not supposed to beat them. But if we played really well, there was a chance, right? We were going to have to play really good. And he asked for fire and brimstones. I gave it to him. And I think it was shortly after that, that he turned to the Lord and he stopped cursing altogether after he heard (laughs) everything I said. I am curious, and you can answer this uh, very succinctly, and you don't need to expound on it. How many times have you been invited to come speak to the team since Archie Miller's been the coach? Zero. Cool. All right. We've taken up a lot of your time. Before we leave you, we hit your NBA career, which I loved doing, um, and I'm sure there's so much more we could cover there. But you then had a career internationally. And just like I did put you on the spot with the Bob Knight story, which by the way, you crushed on the story there. If I asked you, I don't know anything, what it's like to play international basketball. Give me one story that sums up your experience playing international basketball. What would it be? Well, it was, to me, it was college basketball on steroids. Uh, We, I think collective, we, America, it's how we are. We think we're the best at everything. And I think in the last, we, we've, 
you know, more recently, whether it's because of elections or whatever, or maybe starting to rethink how great we are and that we're not perfect <laughs> and we're not we're not the global leaders in everything, right? Um, but I think that's always just how we are as as a society. I can tell you, I went over there thinking my first year in Italy, I didn't get a guaranteed contract offer. Definitely felt slighted like I should have gotten one, but I also recognize I've been traded a couple times, end up on a bad, you know, bad roster during the NBA lockout season. It was, you know, just kind of a bad brew, right? Yep. Um, but I was like, all right, I'm going to go prove it overseas. What I had learned was overseas is not going to pay you the top American dollars until you go over there and prove it to them one time. You're going to have to go show them a whole season, and then they'll pay you. So I was like, I might as well go do this. I'm probably going to be back in a situation where I'm a 10th, 11th, 12th guy or something. And I need to go play well overseas, so I'm going to go do it. Um, I went over there, and I, I got off a plane in Italy, in Bologna, Italy, going, I'm going to just absolutely destroy this league and be the best American player that ever played over here. Um, and then I'm going to go back to the NBA. And I'm not going to make any friends in between now and then. I'm just going to come over here. It's going to be strictly business. And I find out, like, after my first practice, I'm on a team with the biggest gun that ever played in Italy. It's a two-guard named Vincenzo. You can Google this. Vincenzo Esposito. And he actually was the first Italian guy to play. He played for the Raptors for one season, My, I think the year before my rookie year in the NBA. So three or four seasons prior. He played with the Raptors because there's such a. It was like one of their first seasons. It was one. It's a huge. There's a huge Italian population in Toronto, so they mm. wanted an Italian guy. They brought him in. And anyway, in the Italian league, this guy averages like 30 shots a game, and really rained on my parade when I found out my teammate was going to shoot all the balls. <laughs> uh, nonetheless. In the, in the first, we start playing like, you know, three or four practices. Then we play these, you know, like soccer does, these friendly mount matches. So before the regular season starts, we go to Turkey. We're going to play, you know, against one of the top Turkish clubs. And then they're going to, we're going to do a home and home. They're going to come play us. It's the, it's the European preseason, right? Like the NBA does. And all I remember was playing against this Turkish team called Fenerbahce. And it's their top club. And the, the first possession, I caught the ball and put the ball over my head like I was going to swing it and pass it around the perimeter. And this Turkish guy jumped up into my chin, like with his chin, and flailing his arms all over me and, and breathing his, his Turkishness into me. And I was just like, whole, I mean, I almost fell down like, you just learned how aggressive these guys are. So you don't have the high flyers like in the NBA. and It's a different league, but these are men and they're full grown men and they're tough as nails. And they grew up in tougher, harsher environments than, than we want to believe. You know, we, we think of like the inner city guys that make it to the league and they had a rough upbringing. These dudes had a rough upbringing and they brought a whole bunch of toughness with them. And I realized real quick, okay, this is not, you know, I'm not over here to shred these guys. These guys are, these guys are pros, and they've been pros since they were 15 or 16 years old. So when you get a 30-year-old man, this guy is a grizzly veteran, and I learned that real quick. And I had a lot of respect for the league, but 
the brand of basketball that they played was 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 absolutely my style of ball. It was it was more of a college game. Once I'd proven myself to my teammates, they wanted me to get the ball. You know, we had an offense that was trying to help somebody like me get open, so I'm not trying to create off the dribble. Because if that had been the case, I'd have already been retired. Um, <laughs> but but it was a good brand of basketball that I really actually grew to like and appreciate. And hey, let's look at the U.S. Olympic team. Shortly thereafter, the Argentinians and Italians are beating our ass. Yeah, I mean these were good players, guys, for sure. By the way, I just looked it up. Vincenzo Esposito. If that's how you, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. I think you had it right. Um, mm-hmm. He became kind of with because it's different over there where you get into a professional organization very young. He was 15 yep. years old when he got into Caserta. a professional huh? Caserta. He's in Caserta, right? Yes, exactly. Yep. And he played professionally from basically late 80s till 2014. He was two-time MVP, three-time scoring champ. I mean, this guy was a legend, uh, was an absolute legend. So, uh Listen, Brian, Ward, did you want to say one thing about international ball? Well, I feel like we're going to do this again before too long. And and there's a lot more great stories there. And to wrap this up now, so you will come back and not feel like it's going to take up your entire day. Um, it's just such a joy to hear you talk about your experiences your opinions of, of Indiana basketball now, like this is such a treat because most of the time we all have to entertain ourselves and inform each other. And none of us have played basketball beyond high school. Well, none of I was us a teammate. I was a teammate of Brian Evans. At right. That's right. That's right. I always, I always forget that, um, um, that this is, I mean, I, I could do this all day and I, I feel like I am speaking on behalf of the listeners. Like, thank you for, letting us understand not only the experience of, uh, of an inju- individual player who, who went through IU and then had this professional career, but now you're, you know, you're back there. It's like, despite you being an all-time great IU player, um, it, it's very accessible to hear you tell these stories where it's, it's such a tough season where we're all on the message boards and we're all on text chains bitching about things pretending like we know things and and somehow you made talking about basketball for two hours fun again and that <laughs> has been in very short supply oh man hey well guys well thank you number one but i um i love talking to you guys and stories these you know i've i've been so lucky and in, in so many ways to even when i say that i was a huge fan and I'm, i've kind of nestled back into being a fan I don't even want to be hard on these guys. I really just want us to win again so yeah. bad. And I don't mean to be harsh on Archie or the players and the player development. All of this is a tough pill to swallow, right? Um, and I'm, I'd be willing to bet that these guys are busting their butt in the summer trying to improve. We're just not seeing what we want to see. So we all get a little bit sideways. Um, they're young dudes. Um you know, when I see Tim there, somebody that transcends all this time, Tim Garl, it's still hard for me to see him on the bench going, man, he's still doing it. He's still there. And who am I to be talking to you guys, running my mouth about what's going on there? I always try to check myself and go, we really don't know. I mean, 
we we want to act like we know we hypothesize but like somebody like tim who's been there this whole time you know someday i want to have beers with him and talk about the four of us get together because then we're going to be then we're going to learn some shit because he knows and we're all just guessing yeah Mm. well that's fair that's what we do we we make a podcast out of guessing uh a twitter feed out of guessing um but i echo everything ward said i will say officially the war with you is over it was short-lived it was squashed hey shave the bin laden beard then if the war is over then put your beard down no i said put your beard down if i win trustee of indiana with your help if i win trustee i will shave the beard is that where we're headed with this? You're going to be a trustee? I'm running for trustee. Yes. I didn't know. Yes. I, I need know. your. I need you to do an endorsement video for me. Yeah, I will. Uh, but here's what I need in return. You see your little uh, bitmoji behind you? You got to put the beard on him. I know. I know. You're right. I do. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to work on that. Uh, Brian, I'm going to say this. I got you. more, guys. Hey, keep, guys, just bring me in whenever. I carve out time to talk to you guys whenever. Unless I'm in yoga, I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> All right, I'm going to say this to you before we let you go. I can't believe I'm going to say this to you because I should save it for the outro where I know you wouldn't listen to it because there's no way you're going to listen to this. But I'm going to say it to you. We get asked all the time, all the time, who is your favorite guest that you have had on? We have had about 100. Brian Evans is my favorite guest. I've never said that. Oh, oh, my favorite guest. Now, that's so sweet. Now, when we talk to Jared Jeffries, I'll tell him the same thing. But I, right now, I will tell you, you are our favorite, my favorite guest. That's such a that's such a Coach Knight thing. Hey, I, I just I don't care about being your favorite guest as long as I'm your favorite teammate of all time. That's what I care about. That look, uh, the stories I could tell from our time together. Uh, you know, when Ward has me on as a guest, I'll share those stories. But you are absolutely my favorite teammate. You are look, the look, I, I remember the most. I, I have to come in now. I can't just let you say that and not say anything. So I can say without reservation that, Brian, you are my favorite guest that we had on today. Guys, I want to record this because I just I just have this. Just, I love you guys, but I have this like shitty feeling in my stomach that you make this same, you guys do this every time you wrap up a show. It doesn't matter. And I was going to start dropping names of guys that you've talked to that I know are not that fun to talk to. I know a (laughs) bunch of these guys. I know all of these guys. And so if you're saying it to every, listen, if you say it to Calvert, I'm okay. If you, there are certain guys, if you said it to Randy Whitman, I'd say, fine. He's my favorite too. But if you're saying this to everybody, because there's some shitty guys out there to talk to, I know they're not fun. <laughs> All right, well, Brian, uh, you'll no, just have Bri- to Brian, you you are also my favorite. That we and look, we don't feel like we can say that because that's 99 other people. We're we're saying you're not our favorite, but we know they're not listening, right? And so totally we can go them. on record for the first time in the history of our show. And we hadn't talked about this in advance, but you are our favorite and you are welcome anytime. If you're driving around, you want to get something off your chest, text us. We'll scramble. We'll make it into a show. Anytime. I'll do that. I, I'll call, thank you. I'll call you guys. I'll do that. And 
I'll call you often. We'll we'll start talking more until you guys stop taking my calls. And by the way, I I I, I can I'll pick up on it. The first time you don't pick up, I'll go okay. <laughs> I call too much. I'm not stupid. But here's all I ask. I will do this. But you guys, every time you get on the phone with a new guy, you have to say hey. Don't get your hopes up. Brian's our all-time favorite. <laughs> so you just inform him, and it'll be fine. Right. I'll I think it'll take the pressure it. off. It'll take the That's pressure right. off of him right away. It will. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we did a podcast that was able to uh, last through his entire double big gulp of Diet Coke. And uh, <laughs> we, we will have him on again. Brian, be safe. Well wishes boys, to your family. Boys, is fun. Thank you, guys. We'll talk soon. He is. He's, he's my favorite, too. He's the best. He is the absolute best. There's just no bullshit. It's just, there's no arrogance. There's no, it's just, it's just honesty. He's funny. He knows how to spin a tail. He's never caught off guard. He's just awesome, man. He is Indiana basketball. Also the best ball buster. He was, he was reserved in busting our balls today. He, he had a lot of more important things to talk about that was on his mind. So we didn't take the the punishment we normally do. Well, he but, was on his heels too, Ward, because he knew that he was in the wrong on the war. I tell you what, when he came into the clubhouse and we were, we were talking shit as soon as he showed up and then he left and he didn't respond to a couple of the texts from me asking him to come back on. I, I was, I kind of got like, I can only liken it to like middle school when you're like refinding who your friends are, or like, is this guy going to be my friend? And then like, did I say something to upset them at the, you know, at lunch? And I was like, Oh no, did I, did I go too far? Did I give him too hard of a time? Is Brian not going to be our friend anymore? The worst, but I couldn't, I couldn't like try. I couldn't be thirsty and be like, Hey, I didn't mean to upset you, man. Cause I knew that would just be red meat. And then he'd totally eviscerate us. So I'm, I'm glad the war is over. I picked up the, uh, the thirsty train for you and texted him and called him. It was like, hey, you ghosted us. Just want to make sure everything's okay. And he responded, of course I ghosted you. And then I said, but all good? He goes, yeah. I go, we were really worried because you totally ignored several texts. And he responded with one word, strategy. <laughs> But before we go, though, the Cal stuff is unbelievable, right? That's what I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the day. What could have been? But do you think Indiana fans would have accepted Coach Calipari? You know what? The first time we got to the Final Four, any reservations would have went away pretty quickly. And Cal would have so ingratiated himself with the fan base, with the donor class, with everybody, like he's done in Kentucky. That sounds like you like him. I would love him if he'd been our coach for the last 15 years. I would love him if he had done here what he's been doing at Kentucky, and I think Brian nailed it. He said, you know, and look, we hired Samson instead, so there's like no moral high ground that we're like, oh, we're only going to get guys with completely clean noses so it was just, no, we, we hired the wrong guy. And, and that, yes, at Mass, at Memphis, clearly he was doing shady shit. But at Kentucky, because of what Kentucky is and who Cal is, 
who knows in the very first days if he had to be pretty shady. But Brian said it. I don't think he has to be dirty anymore because all he has to do is like, look, I have 27 guys in the league who've made a combined $561 million. Come play for me or not. I, I don't need to offer you anything more than that. And I think where Cal is smart is when he was telling Brian what his plan was, it was not go get the one and dones. I mean, Kevin Love turned out to be a one and done, but Kyle Singler was, I don't think Kyle Singler was a one and done. Maybe he was, I don't know. But he clearly was going to tailor who he recruited based on what Indiana was. Like, I don't think Indiana would have been a one and done factory the way it is as Kentucky. I really don't. I think Cal is smart enough to know that he would have had to do it a little differently, but he would have had his pick of those players. Like he would have had his pick of the two and three year players if he wanted them. And I feel like he ushered in the whole one and done thing, you know, and obviously that was a lot to do with the way the NBA changed the rules for eligibility of kids coming out of high school. Um, so I can't say that, that it wouldn't have happened at IU. I'd like to think because there's so many great players in Indiana, whereas Kentucky does not have any homegrown talent that there would be more four-star level kids who would have said, yeah, let me come in and be a contributor, as Brian said, for three, four years before I go try to make my my fortune instead of just five stars on the court all the time. But yeah. either way, one and done, disappointing ends to some seasons. Like there's, I, I, I would love to hear the reasoning any Indiana fan <laughs> that would claim they would rather have the last 15 years of what we've experienced compared to what wildcat fans have fair enough follow us on twitter at hoosier hysterics for the hysterics no e no i but, but the sometimes z what why not wow all right we'll see you next week from the halls of assembly you'll hear us scream and shout our love of indiana is manic and devout Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.